Welcome back to the podcast History of Our World. Chapter 33, Prehistory in the Aegean. The German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe once said, what the mind and the heart is for a human being, Greece is for mankind. And almost 2,000 years earlier, the Roman statesman Cicero remarked, totum Graecorum est, everything is Greek. Nowadays, it seems that very little in the modern age hasn't been influenced by the Greeks, from science to art to philosophy to government. We know of their gods and monsters and can easily retell the stories of mighty heroes like Perseus, Heracles, Kratos. Okay, maybe that last one's not really true, but especially in the Western world, there is a fond admiration for how the Greeks ushered in a golden age of intellect and reason while fending off the forces of barbarism and tyranny. They celebrated beauty, sneered at ignorance, and spread their culture far throughout the known world. Yep, if there's one civilization that historians love to send all their fan mail to, it's the Greeks. But what we commonly think of ancient Greece, those days of togas and massive column buildings and legions of unemployed philosophers running amok, are a long way off. And as we start at the beginning of Greek history, we must again dispel the Hollywood vision that early ancient Greece was as refined and erudite as what we'll call classical Greece. The men who conquered Troy and Crete were not the deep thinkers that later generations would be remembered for. They were pirates, raiders, a warrior society out for guts, gold, and glory and woe to you if you got in their way. Still, most civilizations enter the world kicking and screaming this way. You'll be hard-pressed to find a single culture that appeared holding a paintbrush as opposed to a sword. And all the same, it makes for an exciting story. So let's just cut down the intro and get right to it. The beginnings of Greek history. Wait, one more thing. In terms of language and pronunciation, I'm going to go with the standard English way of pronouncing Greek names. So Mykene stays Mycenae, and Macedonia stays Macedonia. I know the hard K is more accurate, but I think people have more familiarity with the soft C. Oh, and most of the time I won't need to provide the Greek counterparts for names because the names are the same in both languages. Pericles is still Pericles. A bit more accented, but the same. Okay, for real this time, that's all my disclaimers. Let's start it up. Anthropologists believe that the first real signs of human activity in Greece, and we're talking about Homo sapiens, starts probably somewhere around 40,000 BC. And there's even earlier evidence of hominid activity from at least 200,000 years ago at the Petrolona Cave in Kaldiki. For these Paleolithic inhabitants of Greece, they found a land rich in game, as these animals had moved south to avoid the Ice Age currently going on. Evidence of their activities can be seen at the famous Franti Cave located on the eastern part of the Peloponnese. These hunter-gatherers started calling the cave home as early as 20,000 BC, continually inhabiting it for nearly 18,000 years. That's 18,000 years of trash, debris, and junk. In other words, anthropological gold. As the world warmed around them and the big game disappeared, the Franti dwellers changed their survival tactics. Rising ocean levels from the melting ice sheets must have made somebody think to try fishing, and the presence of lots of large fish bones indicate that they took to the deep sea for their catch. By 8000 BC, wild crops were being harvested, such as oats, barley, pistachios, almonds, and lentils. And around 2,000 years after that, we start to see signs of plant and animal domestication. Now it appears that these early peoples, note I'm intentionally not calling them Greeks yet, were definitely in the process of domesticating their own wild plants. But then again, the agricultural revolution was taking place pretty close to their doorstep in Mesopotamia. So it's quite feasible that the local transition to farming was either influenced by or completely the result of Mesopotamian farmers and settlers. 
Only a few areas in the world can claim to have independently domesticated plants and animals, China and Mesoamerica for example, and no concrete evidence exists to suggest Greece is one of them. It's only really a touchy topic if nationalistic pride is involved, so for our sake, let's just say that it's entirely plausible that both situations are accurate. Except that once these early peoples did start farming, they quickly discovered that the land they settled in isn't the best place in the world for agriculture. I mean, you get that beautiful Mediterranean weather, but it gets so hot in the summer that certain rivers simply dry up. And as for the land itself, the modern country of Greece is 75% mountains with only 30% of the total land considered arable. And of that number, only 20% is considered good farmland. In the highlands, the soil tends to be thin, while in Attica, the region where Athens is, the soil is poor, containing high amounts of clay. Not the greatest for growing food, but it'll later be a boon for the city's great pottery industry. So what does all this mean? It means that Greece hit a roadblock in its developmental history because it couldn't support a large early population. Comparatively speaking, by 3000 BC, the Sumerian city of Uruk, only covering an area of 500 acres, supported a population of 50,000 people. It would take another 2,000 years before Greece could have cities matching those numbers. But hey, it's not so bad. Bountiful fresh seafood, grazing land for goats and sheep, and of course, lots of grapes, olives, and grain. Who needs the Tigris and Euphrates when you've got an amphora of wine, fresh extra virgin olive oil, some nice crusty bread to dip it in, mmm, maybe some stuffed grape leaves? It's all good stuff. Now when we're talking about early Greece, it's important to note that there are really three regions we can refer to. There's the mainland, which we'll get back to in a bit, the Cyclades, which are the island group southeast of the peninsula, and Crete, the largest of the Greek islands and the first to be settled. It used to be thought that the first people to migrate there came sometime around 7000 BC, probably from Anatolia. But recent excavations on the island back in 2009 seem to indicate that date is wrong. Way wrong. Like, over 100,000 years wrong. Stone hand axes found in southwest Crete are kind of throwing accepted fact out the window, now that it's looking like the earliest Cretans took to the sea from northern Africa much earlier than mankind was supposed to. Oops, well, that's the nice thing about history, folks. It's all true until you can find a better truth. Aside from that little historical hiccup, the earliest traces at least of a society on Crete date back to 7000 BC, at the ancient city of Knossos. We have the great archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans to thank for rediscovering the site in 1900, although he did get a little creative reconstructing it. Visitors today will see many ruins reassembled according to his vision of what he wanted the city to look like, and not necessarily what it actually looked like. At Knossos, Evans found the remains of a massive palace, with storerooms, workshops, living quarters, and a throne room, all built around a central courtyard. Since they didn't bother leaving us their true names, Evan dubbed this civilization the Minoans, after the legendary king of Crete, Minos. In Greek mythology, Minos is portrayed as a tyrant, who enslaved the inventor Daedalus to build him an enormous maze, in which to imprison his wife's unnatural offspring, the Minotaur. After a group of Athenians killed a human son of his, Minos demanded blood compensation, specifically in the form of virgin sacrifices from Greek cities. His strength was apparently great enough that the cities gave in and supplied him with an annual tribute of people. This arrangement only lasted for a couple of years before the Athenian hero Theseus put an end to the Minotaur, broke Ariadne's heart, and accidentally caused his father's death. Those heroes. Oh, and Minos then goes off to Sicily, dies in a bath of boiling water, becomes a judge in the underworld, it's not really important right now. But while his palace, at least that's what Evans thought he was digging up, has been pretty well excavated, the labyrinth has yet to be discovered. 
In all reality, it's probably more metaphor than history. I hate when that happens. Minos may or may not have been real, but the sheer size of the palace at Knossos, as well as at Festus and Malia, indicate that the Minoans were definitely a powerful nation. Powerful, but mysterious, as really all we know of them is based off monuments, art, architecture, and whatever foreign records we can piece together. Their own language, written in unique hieroglyphics, has never been cracked. And without a Minoan Rosetta Stone, it might never happen either. But fear not, just because we don't have tons of concrete information doesn't mean I can't tell you a thing or two about them. For starters, regardless of whether they originated in Anatolia or North Africa, one thing we can say for certain is that the Minoans were not Greeks. Their civilization predates the immigration of the Indo-Europeans who spoke the earliest forms of Greek. Minoan society centered around what is termed the palace economy. Now, whereas in other societies the palace is a political administrative building, the Minoans have a model similar to the Sumerians. All business, be it government, religious, or manufacturing and trade, originated at the palace. Workshops for weaving fabrics, living quarters for slave and worker alike, and great storehouses with giant pots filled with grain and olive oil, the palace controlled it all. Seems a little heavy-handed to be sure, but just like in Sumer, officials could maintain a food reserve to protect against times of famine and control all the means of production for the greater good. And before you start questioning what kind of government this is, know that archaeologists are totally undecided as to how the Minoans ruled themselves. We don't have any examples of Minoan kings or leaders, but there are plenty of religious figures, specifically priestesses. In fact, going off the images alone, Minoan society seems downright matriarchal. Men are portrayed in simple clothing with a sunburnt slender frame, while women have a definite regal flair. Whether handling snakes or picking saffron, they are depicted with long wavy hair, wearing decorated floor-length skirts, adorned in jewelry, and a prominently exposed blouse. People have long tried to make sense of their revealing clothing choices, but the way I see it, before there was modesty, there was common sense. It's hot in Crete. Clothes are gross in the heat. Therefore, don't wear a lot of clothing. Genius. But if you really want to get to the root of Minoan society, you have to look to the art for clues. World famous for its bright, playful aesthetic. Graceful athletes deftly leaping over charging bulls, alabaster-skinned girls dancing by a shrine, and everyone always with a thin smile curling off their lips. And why wouldn't they be smiling? They enjoyed a standard of living that other civilizations could only dream of. A healthy trade with Egypt provided the Minoans with ivory, ostrich eggs, and gold. And Egypt in turn received the bounty of Crete wine, oils, and cypress lumber. Today the island is fairly empty of trees, but in ancient times Crete had giant cypress forests, a valuable resource. And of course, the architecture. The Minoans never built walls. They didn't really have any enemies. So instead of focusing on defense structures, they built indoor plumbing. Clay pipes brought in clean water, and a clever drainage system took care of the waste. They had rudimentary flush toilets, hot and cold running water for baths, heated floors. We won't see stuff like this in the West until the Romans bring it back into style. Truly, the Minoans had it going on. For a society this advanced, it's no wonder that their cultural influence spread to nearby islands like Rhodes and Thera, now called Santorini. And despite two earthquakes, one in 1700 and the other in 1575 BC, Minoan Crete was still a strong force in the Mediterranean rebuilding their palaces and civilization over and over again. But the good times wouldn't last forever, especially when Mother Nature has you marked for destruction. The island of Thera used to be a lot larger than it is now, with a thriving city of Minoan colonists called Akrotiri. And then at some point between 1628 and 1520 BC, it blew up. 
Seriously, most of the island is gone now, scraped off the earth in one of the worst environmental disasters in history. Much like with Mount Vesuvius at Pompeii, tremors were felt in advance of the actual event. But unlike Pompeii, the citizens of Akrotiri evacuated the island before the real threat could start. First, the volcano at the center of the island belched out pumice and ash, covering the city and the island in 15 feet of the stuff. Afterwards came the really terrifying part, as massive boulders of scorching hot rock shot forth, demolishing everything in its path. Thick curtains of black smoke and poisonous gas would have enveloped Thera until eventually the volcano would collapse on itself, leaving a massive crater in the center of the island. Thera is about 90 miles north of Crete, and you can be sure that the damage done there would have traveled south by means of a giant tsunami created when the volcano collapsed. Dust storms would have blown onto the island, and not to mention all that ash and smoke in the air would have blocked out the sun for a surprisingly long amount of time. This in turn would cause all sorts of weather disturbances and disrupt the growing season. And for a deeply religious people such as the Minoans, these couldn't have been comforting signs. Yet it wouldn't be until the 1400s that Minoan Crete would officially be on the decline, but it wouldn't be the environment that brought them down, although it certainly hastened their demise. Nope, it would be the appearance of the main stars of our story, the Greeks. Well, to be precise, the Achaeans, or Mycenaeans, or better yet, Hellenes, the first Greeks in Greece. Like so much else in this episode, they too are a mystery. Their origins are undoubtedly Indo-European, although where they came from, no one's quite sure. But when they did, they came with horses, a previously unknown sight. Some chose to peacefully form their own villages. Others settled in previously inhabited cities with non-Greek names like Corinthos. But for the others, they chose war. And by around 1380 BC, there is substantial evidence that they had reached Crete and torched the palaces there. Mycenaean culture would end up replacing Minoan dominance in the Mediterranean for quite some time, and we'll get to the details of that in the next episode. For now, though, I thought I'd provide a retelling of their history in their own traditions. After all, this episode has kind of been lacking in a coherent story, right? So according to the Parian Chronicle, which was written by an unknown Greek historian, the last king before the Great Flood was a man named Deucalion, said to have reigned in 1574 BC. Okay, I'll pause right there. Yes, there is another flood myth in this region. Amazing, right? And it follows the same theme as all the others. God, this time it's Zeus, has grown disgusted at the corruption of man and seeks to cleanse the earth with water. But Deucalion had been given a heads up by his own dad, the titan Prometheus, who advises him to build a small ark with which he and his wife could hide out in. Just the two of them. No stinky animals and no whining family members. This flood only goes on for nine days, however, and after it was safe to come out, Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha give thanks to Zeus for his mercy. Their piety deeply moves the big guy, and he instructs them on how to repopulate the earth. No, it's not what you think. In this story, his instructions are to cover your head and throw the bones of your mother behind your shoulder. Bones being rocks, the bones of Gaia, Mother Earth. And as they threw the rocks behind them, they turned into people. All of Deucalion's rocks became men, all of Pyrrha's became women. One of these new rock men, people, was Ellen, two L's. He would reign in 1521 and is considered by the Greeks to be their earliest ancestor. And if you don't believe me, remember that in Greek, the country is not named Greece. It's Elas, and they are the Elians. A bit later, maybe about 300 years, give or take, comes a Lydian named Pelops. One day he'll have so many sons that become kings in southern Greece that the whole peninsula is named for him, the Peloponnese. But at the start of his career, he has yet to win a crown. And the easiest way to do that is to marry a princess. The daughter of the king of Pisatis, a man named Enemaeus, was available, but there was a catch. 
The king would only wed her off to any man who could best him in a chariot race. Well sure, that doesn't sound too bad. Except that Animaeus was also given a prophecy that his son-in-law would be the death of him. Which meant that every time he raced against a potential suitor, they would end up dead. To work around this, Pelops convinces the king's personal charioteer, Myrtilus, to help him win. In return, Pelops offers him half the kingdom for his cooperation. Not a bad deal. Myrtilus replaces the bronze linchpins in the king's chariot with wax ones, and during the race, they melt, causing the wheels to pop off. Myrtilus escapes safely, but Enemaeus is dragged to his death. The deal had been honored, but Pelops, possibly regretting his offer or seeing an opportunity to remain blameless, seizes the charioteer and tosses him over a cliff to his death. As Myrtilus fell, he used his last breath to invoke a powerful curse on Pelops and his lineage. <laughs> curses. Superstitions, really. Fast forward and we find the son of Pelops named Atreus as king of Mycenae, an important city in Bronze Age Greece. Unfortunately for him, he has to put up with his brother Thiestes, who's always hatching schemes to try and overthrow him. This didn't seem to annoy Atreus too much until he discovered that his wife, the queen, had been canoodling around with Thiestes for quite some time. Well, there's only one way to get revenge in the ancient world, folks, and you've seen it before. He had the sons of Thiestes brought into his kitchen, butchered and then served to their father. And in a move that would have made Astyages applaud his cruelty, Atreus taunts his brother with their severed hands and feet. Now according to Mycenaean law, Thiestes must be exiled for having consumed human flesh, but not before leveling another curse on Atreus and later fathering an incestuous son who would eventually kill the king. Atreus is survived by two sons, Agamemnon, who takes over as king of Mycenae, and Menelaus, who becomes king of Sparta. More on this dynamic duo in the next episode. Shifting the scene over up north, we find another royal dynasty, this time Oedipus of Thebes, also sitting under a curse. He had become king after the previous one was found dead on the road, and as was commonplace back then, he took the widowed queen for his own, to keep the royal lineage intact. But despite the fact that Oedipus had freed the city from the Sphinx, whatever that was, a great pestilence swept over the land. Crops would not grow, and women could not have children. After consulting the soothsayer, it turns out that someone had broken one of the all-time worst crimes against the gods in nature. Incest. Of course, most of the Greek gods are products of incest themselves, which would kind of explain how messed up they can all be, but I digress. Anyway, I'll spare you the gross details of this story, but as I'm sure most of you know, the culprit is revealed to be poor Oedipus, who unknowingly killed his own father and married his own mom. Ugh. When she hears the news, she hangs herself in grief, and he, unable to bear the sight, removes a brooch from her gown and uses the pin to gouge out his own eyes. Blind and forsaken by man in the heavens, it's his daughter Antigone who shows him compassion and leads him to Athens, where King Theseus the Minotaur Slayer gives him sanctuary. Since Oedipus abdicated the throne without choosing one of his two sons to be heir, the two, named Eteocles and Polynices, agree that the only fair thing to do is to share the kingship. Each will rule for a year before turning power over to the other brother. Well, isn't that nice? Except Eteocles gets to be king first, and when his year is up, he realizes he likes being king. The crown will not go to my brother. Well, we'll see about that. Polynices rides off to the powerful city of Argos and raises a small army commanded by six heroes to attack and liberate Thebes, but all lose their life trying to take the city. Even the two brothers fall, fighting each other. This defeat was such a blow to the citizens of Argos that the sons of those six commanders raised another army ten years later and attacked, seeking vengeance. Inevitably, Thebes falls to the Argives. Confused about when all this happened? Sure you are! 
Why am I telling you another pseudo-historical story of questionable authenticity and unreliable dates? I'm setting the stage, of course. Behind every legend is some smidgen of truth. The Oedipus tale I hope not, but the big reason why I mention these stories is that according to tradition, a generation after Thebes fell, all of the Mycenaean Greek world would stand united under Agamemnon and set sail for war against the city of Troy. But that's a story for another episode, and before we cover the events at Troy, we'll take a more comprehensive look at Mycenaean culture from the historical record. They can be just as confusing as the Minoans, but thanks to one amateur British linguist, we can at least translate their language. And as for Troy, well, something big definitely happened over there. And it's awfully coincidental that shortly after the estimated fall of the city in the 13th century BC, Mycenaean Greece fell to invading tribes who claimed to be the descendants of Heracles. That part I'm not making up. But as for the lineage of Pelops, it does seem that the curse would be fulfilled. I don't know, if you're into that stuff. So join me as we discuss the origins and history of the Trojan War, next time on the podcast History of Our World. The melody you heard today is from the oldest complete song in history, the Epitaph of Sekulos, performed none other by great friend of the show Michael Levy. If you'd like to know more about the amazing details of this song, including the translated lyrics, head over to my website, podcasthistoryofourworld.com. And to purchase the album of classical Greek music featuring this track, visit ancientliar.com or wherever Michael's music is sold. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 34, Mycenaean Greece. The year is 1876, and the German archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann, fresh off his monumental discovery of Troy in western Anatolia, has done it again, this time in the ancient city of Mycenae. The city had already been rediscovered a couple of decades previously, but aside from the restored Great Lion Gate, not much had progressed there. But Schliemann knew that the old text described the city as rich in gold, and just as he had found treasure at Troy, so too was he convinced that a fortune must be hidden here as well. He was right, of course. Grave circles located a little to the south of the city entrance contained a find that would make Indiana Jones blush with envy. Nineteen bodies in one grave alone, a small arsenal of bronze swords, daggers, and axes, numerous clay pots painted in magnificent styles, and of course, the now famous artifacts of Agamemnon's mask and Nestor's drinking cup. Not that these really belong to the mythical kings, but it certainly makes things a bit more interesting than gold death mask number 32B, right? From these golden death masks to jewelry, silver cups, and perfectly preserved suits of armor, such wealth could only have belonged to a legendary king, so no wonder he originally thought that this was the tomb of Agamemnon, commander of the Greek forces at Troy. He quickly sent a telegram to King George I of Greece that read, With great joy I announce to your majesty that I have discovered the tombs, which the tradition proclaimed by Pausanias indicates to be the graves of Agamemnon, Cassandra, Eurymedon, and their companions, all slain at a banquet by Clytemnestra and her lover Egathos. Thing is, these graves were built around 1600 BC, making them far older than the estimated date of Agamemnon's life, if he was a real person, by almost 400 years. So really then, how could these people live such luxurious lives that they could just simply bury all this treasure? 
They must have had so much that they could afford to do this, but it's not like their own land is particularly rich. Where is it all coming from? I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's try to figure out who the Mycenaeans were first before we figure out how they got so rich. Okay, so who are they? These are the descendants of the first Greek-speaking Indo-Europeans to arrive in the mainland. We say Mycenaeans because Mycenae was one of their greatest cities, if not the greatest, but there were many others. Tyrenes, Athens, Thebes, Pylos, and Sparta all have their roots in the Mycenaean world. There are no first-hand accounts of what they called themselves, although the poet Homer records that they used the term Achaeans. This might actually have some weight to it, and I'll bring it up again later in the episode. Much like the Minoans on Crete, a unified history of the Mycenaeans is tough to compose, as they left no recorded story. But we do have one advantage in discussing them, and it's all thanks to the British architect and amateur cryptologist, Michael Ventris. It all goes back to when Sir Arthur Evans uncovered Knossos and noticed that the tablets he found contained two types of a pictographic written script, and one looked more sophisticated than the other. Because the writing was done in lines from left to right, he simply called this script linear, and further divided it between A, representing the first script he found, and B, the second more elaborate one. I say elaborate because while Linear A has far more symbols than Linear B, its designs are fairly basic by comparison. No progress had been made in the decipherment of both scripts, widely believed to be the unknown Minoan language, and it was also assumed that the symbols were letters of their alphabet, or stood for whole ideas. But for Ventris, he went on the hypothesis that the symbols actually stood for syllables, as was proposed by previous researchers Alice Kober and Emmett L. Bennett. Comparing the symbols found from a massive hall of 600 Linear B tablets in the ruins of Pylos, he was able to see similarities in some of the words and accurately guessed that they might be city names. Once he had a few syllables down, he worked feverishly to translate the rest. Konoso became Konosos, Pulo became Pylos, and then other words like Tire Pode, Tripodes, or Tripod. Ventris had broken the code and revealed that Linear B, while being based off the Minoan writing system, proved the Mycenaeans spoke Greek. The letdown here is that what's written on the tablets isn't terribly riveting stuff. It's mostly bookkeeping, records, receipts, transactions, and the like. One tablet reads, Kokalos repaid the following quantity of olive oil to Eumedes, 648 liters of oil. And another reads like a court testimonial. Iraitha the priestess has, and swears she has, a special land grant for the god, but the community says that she has 3.9 land measures and a land grant of communal lands. This is still really neat, but it'd be much cooler to read some real history-shaking stuff, like something proving Jason and the Argonauts existed, or Hercules, or Theseus, I don't know, that would be amazing. But developing a writing system seemingly just to handle transactions indicates the Mycenaeans liked doing business and judging from the sheer amount of tablets found, that business was good. At home, Mycenaean society was palace-based, similar to the Minoans, except for a few key differences. The Mycenaean palace was typically built on a hill, and the main structure was separate from the town it looked down upon, much more like a medieval castle. And whereas the Minoans liked the central open courtyard motif, the Mycenaeans preferred the Megaron as the heart of their palace. It sounds a bit like a Transformer robot, but the Megaron is sort of like a throne room, ceremonial center, feasting hall all rolled into one. Visitors would be received here, banquets would be served, and the king or chieftain could conduct business, all within a single room. Now if you recall from the last episode, I mentioned how Minoan cities were built without walls or defensive structures. 
Well, Mycenaean cities definitely were. In fact, the city of Mycenae had such massive stone walls, built by cutting and stacking enormous boulders without mortar, that later Greek visitors proclaimed it was the work of the Cyclopes, the race of one-eyed giants. Yes, some of them go around eating adventurers, but other Cyclopes worked in the forge of the smith god Hephaestus, crafting weapons and tools for the gods. These mighty walls even featured tunnel access for soldiers to maneuver through, and fortified archer stations for raining death onto invaders. The military fortresses of the Mycenaeans are a stark representation of what was at the core of their society. Conquest. Where did all that treasure come from in those graves? Well, alongside the simple life of agriculture and trade, the Mycenaeans were avid raiders. Pirates, really. Undefended coastal villages in the Aegean and Anatolia were like low-hanging fruit to them, just waiting to be picked. And who's gonna stop them? Of the two great empires of the early Bronze Age, the Hittites and the Egyptians, neither had a naval fleet in the Mediterranean. The Mycenaeans had free range to go after whomever they wanted to, and the biggest prize of all would be the island of Crete. No one knows where the animosity towards the Minoans stemmed from exactly. Maybe it's true that the son of Minos was slain by Athenians and they resented the sacrifices he took. Or maybe it's because, quite simply, the Minoans were their only competitor, having long-standing trading agreements with Egypt, Cyprus, and beyond. But sometime after the Thera explosion, the Minoans lost their influence on the region, and the Mycenaeans seized the opportunity to strike. In 1450, the palaces of Crete burned, although Knossos was spared much of the early destruction, possibly because it was used as an administrative base, overseeing a new Greek colony on Crete. But something must have soured this relationship, as evidence shows that Knossos shared the fate of its sister cities and was sacked and burned in 1375. Without a rival in the Mediterranean, Mycenaean influence and trade spread far and wide. No doubt piracy continued, but with expanded markets in Sicily and Syria, there was probably more of a shift to legitimate trade. Of course, the big players in the region, Egypt and the Hittites, didn't seem to care that Crete was under new masters, provided trade continued unabated. But as to their actual correspondence with the Mycenaeans, we have certain evidence from the Hittites, at least, that offers up tantalizing evidence. Most alluring of all is the so-called Tawagalawa letter, written in 1250 BC by the Hittite king Hattusili III to an unknown king of the Ahiyawa. That name, Ahiyawa, sounds awfully close to the Greek word Achaioi, which we know better as Achaeans, the Homeric term for the Mycenaeans. Interesting. Reading on, the letter is a request to an Achaean king to convince his brother, Tawagalawa, to release a Hittite fugitive from a city under Achaean protection. That city is named Milawanda, the Ionian city of Miletus. The Hittite king won't enter the city without the Achaean king's permission, seems fair, and appeals to him to contact his brother. Now the fun part about this letter is that he tells the Achaean king what words to write to his brother. Take a memo. <clears throat> write to him this. May you not be hostile against his land. The king of Hatti has persuaded me about the matter of the land of Walusha, concerning which he and I were hostile to one another. And we made peace. Now hostility is not appropriate between us. And there's the big zinger in this letter. It all concerns that word, Walusha, which has been identified as the Hittite word for what the Greeks used to call Wilios, then later Ilios, the Romans Ilium, and the rest of us Troy. For much of modern history, Troy was a lost cause. People had a general idea of where the city might have once been, but no one really suspected it would ever be found. Shalimin changed all that by following the clues mentioned in the Iliad, Homer's account of the Trojan War. 
by following its directions, namely that the city is near a high mound, that plains surrounded it, that there's a shore nearby, he found an area that fit the bill. Troy would be uncovered on a hill near the Turkish village of Hisarlik, although when it was first uncovered, there was an initial sense of disappointment at its lack of grandeur. Schliemann writes, I am extremely disappointed at being obliged to give so small a plan of Troy. Nay, I had wished to be able to make it a thousand times larger. But I value truth above everything, and I rejoice that my three years' excavations have laid open the Homeric Troy, even though on a diminished scale, and that I approve the Iliad to be based upon real facts. Good to know he realized size isn't everything. And while Troy might not have been the massive city he imagined, it did contain treasure and artifacts, and the revelation that there was not just one city built here, but nine in total, all building right on top of the same spot. Every time something happened to the previous city, people just kept on building, right into the Roman era. This might seem a bit stubborn, but Troy is in a fantastic location. Good flat farmland, pleasant weather, easy access to the water, and a stranglehold on all trade through the Dardanelles to the Black Sea. The taxes from controlling this location alone made it all the more worthwhile to keep building. Now, the archaeology of all the levels is fascinating, of course, but the one we're going to focus on is Troy 7, the estimated city of the eponymous war. Troy 7 was built around 1300 BC, after an earthquake did a number on the previous settlement, but sometime around 1200 it was destroyed and burned down, this time by invaders. Skeletons with skull fractures have been found amidst the debris, suggesting there was no time to bury them, as well as the signs of war an arrowhead of early Greek design, along with sling bullets. Now, could all this just be circumstantial evidence? Well, sure, of course, but so much of the seventh layer was destroyed by fire that it makes you wonder what the Trojans were doing that they couldn't put it out. Perhaps losing a war? Maybe. Now, as much as I love my storytelling podcast, I'm not actually going to go over the entire tale of the Trojan War. I know, I know, but for those of you who've never read the Iliad or just need a refresher, here's a quick podcast history of our world sum up. Atreus, son of the cursed Pelops, had two sons of his own, Agamemnon and Menelaus. Agamemnon was now high king of Mycenae, while Menelaus became king of Sparta after marrying the beautiful princess Helen. A diplomatic mission from Troy, led by the Trojan prince Paris, arrived at Sparta to negotiate better trading relations, but the young prince is smitten with Helen's beauty and seduces her, escaping back to Troy in the middle of the night. When Menelaus discovers this, he appeals to his brother to attack Troy and bring back his wife. Agamemnon agrees, convinces most of the independent Greek cities to join the cause, sets sail for Troy, and after ten years of siege, they sneak into the city within a giant wooden horse. Paris is killed, Helen is rescued, and they all live happily ever after, but not really. Obviously, that's a gross simplification of it all, but that's the general idea. And while the real story itself is so fantastic, what I'm more interested in right now is the aftermath of this event. We've got the evidence to suggest a war did happen in Troy, but all the other details have to come to us through legend. For starters, what became of the two brothers? For Menelaus, his story is best fleshed out with the inclusion of the Egyptian account of the Trojan War. According to their priests, after Paris left Sparta with Helen, he made a pit stop at Sidon and sacked the city. On his way back to Troy, however, his ship was blown off course and he ended up in Egypt, where the pharaoh had learned of his treachery in Sparta. He ordered Helen and the treasure seized and sent Paris packing back home. By the way, this could also explain why the Greeks waited outside the walls of Troy for nine years. 
Helen wasn't home, and they didn't think to just ask the Trojans. Anyway, Menelaus finds out she's in Egypt, picks her up there, nearly causes a diplomatic disaster by sacrificing an Egyptian child for good sailing winds, but does return home safe and sound with his bride. Agamemnon, however, would feel the full effect of his family's curse. His wife Clytemnestra loathed him for sacrificing their daughter Iphigenia so that the winds would improve, and when he got back home, she and her lover murdered him. They in turn were murdered by his eldest son Orestes, who was then driven mad by the Furies, winged female spirits who punished those committing grievous sins, like matricide. As for the other Greek kings who fought in the war, some would make it back home safely, while others would get royally screwed over like Odysseus, and some would be buried on the shores of Troy. Oh, and a certain Trojan prince from the land of Dardania would escape to start a new life for himself with the Latins of Italy. But that's for another episode. And yet, following the victory at Troy, something happened on the mainland. The already impressive walls of the Mycenaeans were being expanded, bigger and longer, and trade within the region is starting to dry up. And despite the addition of these defenses, over the next 100 years, ending roughly around 1100 BC, Mycenaean society will have totally disintegrated, as their palaces went up in flames. And no one's quite sure why. The most traditional theory held by historians concerns the invasion of those descendants of Heracles I mentioned last time, the Dorians. These are tribal Greek speakers coming from the north, and they found the land of Mycenaean Greece weak and fractured. Possibly because if we are to believe the accounts of the Trojan War, then the resources used during this protracted ten-year campaign would have drained the city-states of food, funding, and manpower. Perhaps the Dorians saw this as the opportunity they had been waiting for and pushed south towards the Peloponnese, taking what they believed was theirs by birthright. One by one, the old cities fell. Mycenae, Pylos, Sparta, but not Athens, due to the self-sacrifice of their king, a fact that Athenians would boast about in later times. To escape the invaders, many Mycenaean Greeks fled and set up colonies in Cyprus, southwestern Anatolia, and the Ionian coast. Others turned to raiding and piracy in Egypt and the Levant, the origins of the Philistines and the so-called Sea Peoples. The Dorian invasion also coincides with the Bronze Age collapse, mentioned way back in episode 14, I believe, as the other areas of the eastern Mediterranean, Egypt and Hatti, suffered during this time of societal disarray. Yet when the dust settled, the Dorians were still in Greece, having done away with the systems and methods of the civilized Mycenaeans and Minoans, and instead pursuing the simple life of agriculture. But with that regression also came the loss of the most precious gift the ancient world can give us, writing. We have the clay tablets of the Mycenaeans, ironically, because when their palaces burned up, it baked the clay, hardening it and preserving it through time. But the Dorians were tribal folk who had no need for such things. Without any written information of their activities in history, one could say we're in the dark about them, and how very right you'd be. When we pick up next time, we'll explore what is commonly called the Dark Ages of Greece, so named because of the lack of sources from this time. But that's not to say we're entirely without information, or for that matter Dark Ages implies some kind of grim, stagnant time. Government is re-establishing itself in a new way, and Greek communities all over the region are forging new identities. Not to forget, of course, that at the end of every Dark Age comes a renaissance of sorts. Art and culture will eventually return, and by the mid-700s, a blind poet will preserve through memory and oral tradition the heroes of Troy. It's a time of transition for the Greeks, and for us, on the podcast history of our world. 
Ancient Greek music can be a bit jarring to the modern ear, but Gregorio Paniagua and his musicians stay true to the sounds of the past. To find out more about where to purchase their album, visit harmoniamundi.com or my website at podcasthistoryofourworld.com. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 35, The Hellenic Dark Age. The date is 1200 BC, well, approximately. It's the beginnings of the Bronze Age collapse, that moment of time when cultural and societal upheaval spread throughout the ancient Near East. Assyrian military dominance is pushing into Babylonia after having conquered the Mitanni a few decades earlier. Egypt is currently ruled by the son of Pharaoh Merenptah, who left us a message about laying waste to Israel. And in Anatolia, the Hittite capital of Hattusa only has about 20 years left before it's destroyed by various conquering groups. The great empire of Hatti has lost significant power and influence in the region through grain shortages and vassal state uprisings, which could explain why they couldn't do anything about that little incident to the west near the Dardanelles. You know, the one with the allied city of Troy that just got royally trashed and gutted by the Mycenaeans. Ancient sources dated that sacking to around 1200 BC, although modern historians now suspect it was 50 years earlier. But once the victorious heroes returned back home to Greece, it wasn't very long before things got bad over there too. At fault were the Dorians, those tribal Greek speakers from the north, conquering and plundering the various cities and decimating the population thus ushering in the Dark Ages. But you know, something just doesn't feel right about that as a definitive answer. I mean, the Mycenaeans were no pushovers. They sacked Troy, they conquered Crete, they could build massive stone walls where each stone weighed two tons. How could they lose to a bunch of backwards, unwashed brutes? Tradition even states that the Dorians tried attacking before the Trojan War, near Corinth, but an Arcadian king easily repelled them. So what changed? To that I say external and internal factors are to blame here. Some of them the Mycenaeans' own doing, some of them they had no control over. Environmental factors could be to blame as a drought supposedly took place during the mid-1100s. Now normally in good times, grain and foodstuffs would have just been imported from Egypt or the Hittites, but as those empires were going through their own turmoil, trade was unreliable. Then there's the aftermath of Troy to consider. Sure, you've got the honor and the glory, and that's all fine and well, but now an entire host of heroes are returning home after a decade of conflict. They're tired, they're hungry, and most likely they're harboring disease. But think about it, these soldiers have spent the last 10 years of their life in a military shanty town on a beach near Troy. No running water, limited Bronze Age medical care, poor diets, saying it was unhygienic is putting it mildly. The Iliad even mentions plague breaking out at one point, and returning kings are said to have brought the disease home with them, such as King Idomeneus of Crete. Famine and disease could certainly have set the backdrop for a massive population drop in the 1100s, but the Dorians were the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. As wave after wave poured into Greece, they pushed out the weakened Mycenaeans by force, partially aided by the Dorians' mastery of iron weapons, and setting up shop in the abandoned lands. Some Mycenaeans held out in the southern Peloponnese. 
Others fled to the islands, Cyprus, and along the Ionian coast, thus intensifying the population drop of the mainland. But when the Dorians had finished their conquest of Greece, they also took to the sea. The islands of Milos, Rhodes, and Thera were all settled by the Dorians, as well as the biggest prize of all, Crete. Their warriors conquered Knossos and the coastal areas, using the existing Mycenaean inhabitants for fieldwork and forcing the remnants of the Minoans, called Etiocretans or True Cretans, into the eastern mountains. This small community would be cut off from the rest of the Greek world for centuries, but they would also preserve many of the traditions of what it is to be Cretan, including shrines and another as yet undeciphered writing script also called Etiocretan. Now I know it's sounding like the Dorians are singularly focused about exterminating all in their path, like some Iron Age Daleks, but more than likely there was plenty of peaceful settling down and intermarriage going on too. It's not like anarchy was rampant either. Political institutions survived in the form of chieftains, and those chiefs would oversee villages of farmers, craftsmen, shipbuilders, and the new profession of the blacksmith. Yet while this infrastructure stayed on as best it could, there was still much that fell apart. Trade outside of Greece was significantly reduced, as attested through the lack of luxury goods appearing in gravesites from this time, and the fine artwork and architecture of the Mycenaean simply disappears from the historical record. And of course, the worst scourge of the Dark Ages was that of rampant illiteracy. The complex system of Linear B that had maintained the economies and societies of the Mycenaean world for centuries fell out of use, and for nearly 400 years the Greeks were without a writing system. Which is problematic for us, because without records of events, it's tough to create a cohesive story. Yet despite this, the Greeks kept their history alive through the oral tradition, storytellers transmitting tales and events through song and poetry. But without written tablets to double-check the facts, people got a bit creative with their memories. Minos feeding Athenians to a half-man, half-bull? Thebes being run by a guy with a serious Oedipus complex? Well, I'm sure it sounded rational at the time. Just think of a game of telephone. What starts as the original phrase typically doesn't make its way around the circle in whole form. These stories could have been altered, unintentionally of course, over the years until they were repeated enough times to become accepted as plausible, if not true. Likewise, 400 years after the Dorians invaded and the Mycenaeans had spread throughout the Aegean, no one was really quite sure exactly what happened. Sure, there were stories that the children of Heracles came into Greece, but any lasting resentment or anger had faded away. There were no more Dorians and Mycenaeans specifically, but rather a Greece, and I use that term lightly, inhabited by the Hellenes. There was no unified country or empire, but rather a land where your identity depended on the household you were born into, the region you lived in, and the dialect of Greek you spoke. By about 900 BC, three dialects dominated the Greek world. Those from the Peloponnese, Western Greece, and the islands of Cretan Rhodes spoke the Doric dialect. After all, that's where the Dorians made their biggest impact. If you were from Athens, the surrounding region of Attica, or from the Ionian coast, you spoke the Ionic dialect. And last, if you were from Thessaly or northwest Anatolia, you spoke the Aeolic dialect. And now to really change gears completely, let's get to the part where the Dark Age ends. Which I know must sound like I'm seriously skipping ahead here, but really most of this stuff is archaeological history, and it's really fascinating to read about, but it lends itself more to a long lecture, not a brief podcast. Check the blog for more information if you're in the mood for some extracurricular learning. 
Moving right along, you know that a dark age is coming to an end when art and culture come roaring back in style. The art resurgence that starts in the 900s is referred to as the protogeometric style, so named because the designs on pottery are of things like wavy lines and circles within circles, and eventually progress to more complex forms. Middle geometric art features sharp angles, cross-hatching, repeating patterns, and the classic Greek meander pattern, or Greek key design. If you're not sure what that looks like, think of that iconic blue and white New York City coffee cup, the one that says we are happy to serve you. The pattern on the top and the bottom is the Greek key design. Also the cup is called the Anthora, in case you've always wondered that. Anyway, this style continued to improve until artists start featuring animals and human shapes in their designs around 750 BC. Yet whereas the Minoans and Mycenaeans had a real knack for portraying people in their artwork, the late Dark Age artists were not nearly as skilled. I guess it's unfair to criticize them. I mean, their work is still pretty cool. But really, between what the Minoans put out and what these artists did, there's no comparison. But still, there's a real endearing quality to this new style. Very minimalist, focusing on form and not detail, and even the people are drawn in geometric ways, with triangular chests and sharp angular limbs. There's also a lot of these amphoras showing funeral scenes, complete with charioteers, soldiers with massive shields all marching in procession, and women wailing in grief. I don't know if it was all the rage back then to get one of these commissioned for your own funeral, or maybe it was just the fashion of the time. But if these were made to honor the loss of a high-status individual, just remember what the Mycenaeans used to do for their leaders, creating massive tombs filled with gold, weapons, fineries, and the like. The late Dark Age Greeks were also buried with jewelry, in addition to these amphoras, but never on the scale as once seen. It's always exciting to dig up a relic of the past, but the best treasure of this time period doesn't come from pottery or earrings, but from a man who may or may not have ever existed, the blind poet Homer. He's said to have been born in either the Ionian town of Smyrna or on the nearby island of Chios. And at some point during the 8th century, he composed the two great epic poems of Greece and of the world, the Iliad and the Odyssey. The first, coming in at nearly 16,000 lines, tells a brief but exciting part of the Trojan War, focusing on a few weeks during the 10th year of siege. The latter, coming in at an equally respectful 12,000 lines, tells of the hero Odysseus returning from the war to his home island of Ithaca after a long and wild 10-year trip. How is it that one man could construct such massive stories, commit them to memory, and then repeat them enough times that one day enough people remembered them well enough to write them down verbatim? Yeah, it sounds far-fetched, which is why some have theorized Homer couldn't have been one man, but several poets, each adding to the other's work. But these are the same party poopers who doubt Shakespeare. Surely no one's that good. Well, I for one want to believe in Homer. I want to believe that a blind poet traveled the Greek countryside telling these stories over and over again to an audience yearning for a better age, back when the Greeks were united in the face of a common enemy, a time when individual cities and kings fought together under one great ruler to fulfill the sacred oath they took to protect the beautiful Queen Helen. And you know what? The Greeks thought so too. Enter the early stages of Pan-Hellenism, the notion that despite their differences and quarrels, there was much that could unite the Greeks as well, specifically religion and their shared past. Important sacred places like the Shrine of Zeus at Dodona and the Temple of Apollo and Artemis at Delos attracted visitors from all over the Greek-speaking world, making them must-see pilgrim destinations. And reflecting that interest in the past, hero cults began to spring up, 
seeking to honor and worship long-lost legendary figures like Agamemnon and Menelaus. But of course, the greatest symbol of the Panhellenic idea is traditionally said to have started in 776. There are a few legends regarding its creation, but the most common goes that King Iphitus of Elis, a city in the northwestern region of the Peloponnese, traveled to the oracle at Delphi to ask how to get the Greeks to stop fighting each other. She instructed him to hold a series of sacred games every four years at the city of Olympia, where a famous temple to Zeus and Hera was located. During this time, a truce must be declared throughout the Greek cities for three months so that athletes could travel to and from the games safely. Thus came the earliest origins of the Olympics, initially only patronized by local competitors, but within a century would see participants coming from throughout the Greek world. Other games to honor the gods would pop up later, like the Pythian and Nemean games, but nothing could draw the crowds like the Olympics. Alright, let's see. Art is coming back, culture is coming back, people are competing in sports instead of killing each other. Oh, and finally, writing is coming back. And this time the Greeks had the good sense to forget that silly linear B stuff and get with the times. Look, only Egypt is really using that hieroglyphic picturey stuff nowadays. It's so hard to remember. All the really cool civilizations know that if you want to get ahead, you gotta use an alphabet. And the best around is the Phoenician script. So easy to learn, and look at this! 20-something characters are all you need to express whatever you need to. Absolutely brilliant, and the Greeks who encountered it thought so too, although in typical Greek ingenuity they saw it could be improved upon. For starters, the characters would have to be adjusted a tad. Rotate this one like this, make this one look more like that. Ha! Perfect. Oh, and one more thing. The Greeks invented characters for vowels. No more having to previously know what a word sounded like before learning it. As long as you know the alphabet, you can read anything. And that's something I've talked about before, how the problem when we're trying to read ancient Egyptian or Phoenician is that there's no vowels. We simply have to do our best approximation as to what the words would have sounded like. Not so with the Greeks. 24 characters and we can read their exact words over 2,000 years later. Thanks, guys. Actually, there's only one little snag with this alphabet. It's nothing really, a little trivial detail. But the names for the Phoenician letters all actually mean something. Take for example the first four characters, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and Daleth. These are the names of the letters and they are nouns. Aleph means ox, Beth means house, Gimel means camel, and Daleth means door. When the Greeks took their alphabet, they kept the names in easier to pronounce ways, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta but forgot to take the meaning. So it's just sounds. Now, the Greeks didn't have a very good excuse for this either, but Plutarch once had this tidbit of an explanation as to why Alpha was kept at the beginning of the alphabet. He said, Lamprius, my grandfather, said that the first articulate sound that is made is Alpha, for the air in the mouth is formed and fashioned by the motion of the lips. Now as soon as those are open, that sound breaks forth being very plain and simple, not requiring or depending upon the motion of the tongue, but gently breathed forth whilst that lies still. Sounds like a lot of hot air to me, but Alpha stuck, and now we use it to signify anything that's either first or tops. Alpha dog, alpha male, alpha centauri, and so on. It's a now you know moment. So, everyone's keeping busy in the 8th century. So busy, in fact, that there's a bit of a population boom going on. No one's quite sure why it happened, but the biggest theory so far is that the agricultural economy shifted away from livestock to crops. 
What was once pasture is being converted into farmland for grain, olives, grapes, and the like, because you can feed more people from an acre of grain than an acre for sheep. A little mutton might be tastier, but chances are the changeover wasn't your call to make. And that's because for the vast majority of farmers, they didn't own the land they worked on. The best fields for grazing had already been claimed by chieftains and other established families many, many generations ago. And now it was these best people, these aristoi, who were in command of most of the land, thereby controlling what you do with it. I know it might sound strange that in 750 BC that there is already a very unequal distribution of land, but remember, there's not that much arable land to go around in the first place, and we're also talking about a country that's roughly the size of Scotland. How's that for perspective? But instead of trooping it out and working for these elite landowners, or fighting for revolution, the Greeks took to the seas, and traveled farther than they ever had in the search for more land. This expansion was not done by individuals or small groups, however, but was a carefully manipulated extension of a Greek city-state's power. That city-state, or polis, really came into its own during this time, serving as the defining organizational system in Greece. We've encountered city-states before, like in Sumer with Uruk and Ur, and of course there's Renaissance Italy with Florence and Milan, and in ancient Greece it wasn't too different either. Polis initially just referred to the major city of a region, but by the end of the Dark Ages it was being used to describe the adjacent territory as well. So this meant that all the little hamlets and farming communities outside of, you know, Corinth became part of the political unit that is Corinth, in a process called oikismos, coming to live together. Oikos meaning household. This also meant that even if you lived 10 miles away from the main city, this still made you a Corinthian. Now just like in Samaria and Renaissance Italy, the Greek polises could either be in a cooperative relationship, in direct competition with each other, or totally hostile. Yes, they're all ethnically Greek, but so what? So-and-so's sheep has been grazing too much on our land. This calls for punishment. The polis also arranged for the settlement of new communities, sending forth its colonists to create new trading posts and ease up the surplus population. And while the Mycenaeans had been content to stick to the Aegean Islands and parts of Ionia, the new Greek colonists looked to the world at large. The allied city-states of Halkis and Eritrea sent out merchants to establish colonies in Italy. The overcrowded island of Thera, which had since been repopulated long after the terrible explosion, formed a colony called Cyrene in what is now Libya. Colonists from Phocia, a city on the western Anatolia coast, traveled up the coast of Italy all the way to what is now southern France to form the colony of Massilia. And while other Doric cities populated Sicily, Italy, and North Africa, the Aeolian and Ionian cities looked far to the north for their success. Bravely traversing the Black Sea, explorers from Miletus created a colony all the way on the eastern coast of the Crimean Peninsula called Panticapaeon. Also of note during this time is the colony of Byzantium, which will be founded by colonists from Megara, but whose glory days are far off in the future. Now more often than not, the Greek colonists came into contact with the original inhabitants of these regions, with mixed results. Massilia entered into a profitable relationship with the local Celtic tribes, becoming a wealthy trading port, while the colonists in Cyrene had a difficult time fending off Berber attacks in their earliest days. Things looked so bad for them, actually, that they tried to return to Thera, only to be turned away by armed islanders, violently unwilling to accept more mouths to feed. But overwhelmingly, the colonies were a success, spreading Hellenic ideals and culture far and wide. 
By the start of the 6th century, it seemed that the Dark Ages were a distant memory, as the Hellenes looked boldly towards a prosperous new future. Next time on the podcast History of Our World, we'll talk about a polis that I've intentionally left off the previous list. Because while all the other city-states were sending their colonists far and wide, this one, landlocked within the plains of the Peloponnese, chose a different tactic. Why travel to the ends of the earth when there's plenty of perfectly good land right here in Greece? So what if there are Greeks currently living there? We can find a use for them right after they've been sufficiently conquered. Who says that Greeks don't make good slaves? Oh yes, so all together now, what land is this? This is Sparta. To learn more about the ancient Greek music performed by Gregorio Paniagua and his musicians, visit HarmoniaMundi.com. Support their hard work by purchasing the album from iTunes, Amazon, or from wherever you get your music. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 36 Sparta Once upon a time, or so the story goes, an old man was searching for a place to sit during the Olympic Games. As usual, it was a packed house, and while he hobbled through the different areas struggling to find a seat, the crowd hurled insults at him for causing a distraction. This continued on until the old man reached the section of the Spartans, who upon seeing him approach all got up to offer him a seat, even those older than him. The crowd took notice of this and applauded, but the old man turned to them, shaking with tears in his eyes, and spoke, Alas for the evil days, because all the Greeks know what is right and fair, but the Spartans alone practice it. This episode is all about Sparta. What is it about this place that still captures the imagination nearly 3,000 years later? Is it admiration for their warriors, fighting as one, choosing death over surrender? Is it their simple values, embracing a modest life? Or is it their progressive views towards women? After all, Sparta was the only Greek city to require academic and physical education for girls. Maybe it's a bit of everything. But as we reflect upon the roots of Sparta, keep in mind at what lies at the center of this society. The idea of Sparta, the very concept of everything Spartan society is, revolves around one unavoidable truth. Slaves. Now they are by no means the only slave-owning society in the world. After all, this is ancient history. Slavery is an inescapable fact of life. It's common, rampant, and completely acceptable. Even high and mighty Athens has no qualms about owning slaves. But Sparta really took it to new levels, instituting a brutal, oppressive system designed to eliminate all traces of a slave's humanity, reducing them essentially to draft animals. So then, let's start right at the top, namely the founding of the current Sparta. If you don't have access to a map right now, picture the southern part of Greece, the Peloponnese, in your head. It sort of looks like a dinosaur foot, with the four claws pointing towards the south and the heel pointing sort of northwest. Now between the two middle claws, there is a river, the Eurotus, that travels through the fertile Laconian plain, and about 25 miles north of where the river empties into the sea is where Sparta sits proudly. 
There used to be a Mycenaean Sparta, of course, back in the legendary times of Atreus and Menelaus, but since the Dorians swept in almost 400 years ago, those days are long gone. By the 8th century BC, the descendants of those Dorians, living in four villages near the river, joined together to form the polis or city-state of Sparta. This Sparta went through the same land and food problems as the other Greek polises, but instead of choosing colonization, as so many other cities did, the Spartans chose the path of conquest. Why start from scratch when you can just take what you want? Their first target was the rest of Laconia, all land to their south, mostly inhabited by farming villages and towns. The Spartan army was still young and their soldiers were not yet the awesome fighting force they would eventually be, but these villagers were no match for them. This land now belonged to Sparta, who proceeded to divide those living there into two classes, both subordinate to Spartan citizens. Those fortunate enough to live closer to Sparta became known as periokoi. They were allowed to remain free and own land, however they were also required to serve in the Spartan army and had no voice in the government. The rest became known as the helots, slaves that were, in the words of the Spartan poet Tertius, like donkeys suffering under heavy burdens, they lived under the painful necessity of having to give their masters half the food their plowed land bore. Serfs, vassals, thralls, whatever you want to call them, they were conquered Greeks owned by the city, controlled by the government, whose lives had only one purpose, growing food for their new overlords. The helots didn't actually own the land they worked on, a Spartan aristocrat did, and they came with the property. And in exchange for getting to keep their lives, the helots had to pay a rent of half their annual crop. Sounds fair. And free from having to work the fields, the Spartans could dream of even greater conquests, namely to the west and the plains of Messenia. This region contained some of the best soil in Greece, as well as wealthy and established cities and towns. The Messenians were also the descendants of the Dorian invaders, although the Spartans could care less about that. Their neighbors have enjoyed freedom for too long, the Spartans attacked but were unable to achieve the same easy victory as they had before. The Messenians were far stronger than the Laconian villagers, and the Spartans hadn't perfected their military tactics. It took 20 years to successfully subjugate the region, with traditional dating identifying 720 BC as that year. As with before, some people became periokoi, usually those of high status, but the majority were now helots. As a side note, 20 years away from home is an awful long time, and while the men are out roughing it up, what are the women supposed to do? Now famous in Greek literature is Penelope, wife of Odysseus, who remained faithful to him for the same amount of time, two decades, even while he was canoodling with exiled sorceresses. She is truly an inspiration. Maybe for other Greek women. Spartan women refused to put their love lives on hold, and with no proper Spartan men to stand in, the women turned to the helots and the periokoi for a little... Of course, when the Spartan men returned home, you can imagine their surprise to find a whole new generation of Spartans waiting for them. But these bastard children, dubbed Parthenae, were cast out around 706 BC, and sent to start up Sparta's only colony, a town in southern Italy called Taras, now modern-day Toronto. At least, that's the most common account of how it got set up. Taras maintained a close relationship with her mother city, and would eventually grow to be a powerful force of its own. But in the beginning, at least, its chief role was as an exile destination, for any helots or periokoi getting too big for their britches. At the beginning of the 7th century, Sparta had successfully expanded its territory and added a significant new population of helots to the state, all ready to toil away. 
Except the Spartans failed to consider that the Mycenaeans, who had their own distinct culture and identity, enjoying nearly 400 years of liberty, wouldn't really be okay with this. Nearly 40 years after the culmination of the First War in 685 BC, new hostilities were initiated as the region went into total revolt. It would take another roughly 20 years before Sparta was able to re-establish control over Messenia, exiling potential but still useful troublemakers to Taras and executing military leaders. This final victory had made Sparta the largest of the Greek states, but it had also shown them a disturbing situation. In a land where disgruntled angry slaves outnumbered Spartans nearly 7 to 1, the potential for another uprising could come at any time. The only surefire way to prevent this was through compassionate emancipation. Ha! No, the only way to combat this threat is twofold. One, develop a state-sponsored system of humiliation and violence towards the helots to keep them in a constant state of fear and oppression. Two, create the world's first army of elite professional soldiers, men born for war, each one the product of a society that expects nothing of him but military service, their only obligation to fight and, to quote the famous phrase, come back with their shield in victory or on it. For the helots, they were forced to wear animal skin clothing and funny hats either made of leather or dog skin. The translation's a bit weird on that one. And to remember how meaningless their lives were, annual beatings were implemented in addition to religious holidays where murdering helots was allowed without reprisal. As well as the whole turning over half your harvest thing, helot men were forced to serve in the Spartan army, albeit as slingers or some other low, easy-to-kill position, while the women could be used as wet nurses or domestic staff. Basically, it doesn't get any worse than being a helot toiling in a hot field day after day until some jacked-up teenager looking to impress his bros shows up at your house and stabs you to death, and then gets a reward for doing so. Yeah, the worst. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, much of what we consider to be Spartan society, the seriousness, the austerity, the militarism, comes from the mind of one man, the great Spartan lawgiver Lycurgus. Some historians have him coming to power after the first Messenian conflict, maybe at the top of the 7th century, while Greek sources place him even earlier, possibly 9th century or before that. Also that he might have been a god, or demigod, trifling details really. Regardless of when he lived, or if he lived at all, the Spartans absolutely believed he did, and reforms credited to him were in place by the end of the 7th century. The story goes that Lycurgus saw a Sparta that had lost its way from the noble example of the Homeric heroes. It's not that the people were weak, but they needed discipline and strong leadership. After receiving a declaration of approval from the oracle at Delphi called the Great Retra, Lycurgus and 30 of his supporters marched into the Spartan marketplace in full armor, ready to challenge anyone unwilling to accept his changes. He wasn't really going to fight anyone. Lycurgus knew the value of a bit of theater, and the message was well received. No one challenged him, and even the current king of Sparta joined Lycurgus in the revolution. First of his reforms was to shake up the government. Sparta would be unique for having two kings to ensure that the city was never without a leader. They were the religious, political, and military heads of the state, and while equal in authority, also served as a check against one another gaining too much power, a common fear in the Greek world. Below them was the Gerousia, a council of 28 elders, men over 60, who along with the kings voted on matters of the state, discussed ideas, and meted out judicial punishments. Induction into this group was made after a previous member had died, and was not by how many votes you got, but by who received the loudest shouts. 
The person who could turn the Garrosia into a screaming match would be rewarded with the highest honor a Spartan citizen could achieve. Problem is, this system tends to lend itself to cronyism and oligarchy, which, I mean, that's probably what Lycurgus wanted all along. Well, I still like what Aristotle has to say about this. The mode in which Spartans elect their elders is childish. The worthiest should be appointed, whether he chooses to or not. Below the Garrosia were the ephors, five men over the age of 30 elected for an annual term. They advised the kings on legislative issues and even had the power to impeach them, should they break the laws. The ephors were also responsible for overseeing the only secret police force known to the Greeks, called the Cryptea. Young and ambitious Spartan men were recruited into this shadowy group with the one purpose of identifying troublesome helots and killing them with impunity. Volunteering for this group was the only way to guarantee advancement to the top levels of Spartan society. Lastly, at the bottom of the government, but by no means last in power, was the appella, or assembly. This included all male citizens over 30 who met once a month outside during a full moon. This is where the Garrosia presented new laws to be voted on, although the Appella did not debate these proposals, just a vote. A Spartan was taught to always be deferential to their elders. Probably would have been beneficial to see a little critical thinking going on, but it certainly is a more civil way of doing things. Okay, government sorted out, next on to the people. For starters, Lycurgus cancelled all debts, and, you know, have you ever realized how many times already we've seen new leaders come in and cancel personal debts? If anybody wants to pass that info on to our politicians, my student loans would really thank you. <clears throat> anyway, Lycurgus cancels debts and divides all land in Laconia into equal parcels to be doled out to Spartan citizens, to show that all are equal. Any helots who lived on this land worked for their new masters, although they were technically still property of the state. Next on the checklist, it's time for Spartans to start living more, well, Spartan. Houses and furniture must be built and finished using nothing more than an axe and saw. Keeping everything plain and rough and having everyone follow this rule ensured that no one could be jealous of another's wealth. And speaking of wealth, Lycurgus banned the use of gold and silver as currency. Instead, he replaced it with the true source of Sparta's strength, iron. Sparta had some of the best iron mines in Greece, and while great for weapons, bulky, heavy iron ingots made for difficult shopping. Of course, the point here is that who would do business in a country that rejects gold and silver? Who would steal from someone whose money is worthless? And in turn, the Spartans were unable to purchase any luxury goods from foreign lands. As Plutarch records, Merchants sent no shiploads into Laconian ports. No fortune teller, no harlot monger, or gold or silversmith or jeweler set foot in a country which had no money. So that luxury deprived little by little of that which fed and fomented it, wasted to nothing and died away of itself. The last of his reforms, and the hardest to accept, was the introduction of communal mess halls. All citizens were required to eat together, even the kings and elders. This was intended as the ultimate notion of an equal society, but there was early outrage at this. A young aristocrat was so horrified at the thought that he chucked a stone at Lycurgus, blinding him in one eye. But the lawgiver was apparently a fair and calm man, who even convinced his attacker to join and accept this new institution. But suppose this carried on today. Imagine that it's illegal to have dinner by yourself, in the privacy of your own home. That every day, right around supper time, you'd have to physically get yourself to the local cafeteria to eat with total strangers, or else you could be arrested. This is why, as one ancient visitor to a Spartan mess hall from the colony of Sybaris reported, 
Now I know why the Spartans do not fear death. Yes, well, if only this visitor knew the whole truth behind why the Spartans did not fear death. Because the never being alone for dinner thing is a piece of cake compared to the grueling and brutal educational system of Spartan boys, the Agosia. All newborn boys were examined by members of the Garrisia. If they were found to be weak or sickly, they were left to die on the slopes of Mount Taigetus. At the age of seven, the boy was taken from his home to train in groups called herds to get the child used to working in a unit. Early education focused on enduring pain and hardship, going barefoot to toughen feet, not being allowed to sleep, withholding food and water, all situations that could occur as soldiers. At 12, the boy had his hair shaved and given a single red cloak per year. This would be the boy's only clothing and blanket. He would sleep on a self-constructed scratchy mat of pulled reeds and was permitted to take a cold bath twice a year on religious occasions. His food was a simple black porridge, intended to keep him alive, but barely. Spartan boys were encouraged to supplement their meager rations by taking whatever they wanted from the helots. Stealing and murdering to acquire food and supplies was acceptable, unless you got caught. If that happened, you could be severely whipped, not as punishment for your crimes, but for getting caught. A similar scene also occurred during the annual games at the altar of Artemis Orthia, a Spartan cult dedicated to the hunting goddess. Young contestants had to brave their way through a force of older youths carrying whips, guarding the ultimate prize, cheese. As the boys rushed past the guards, they were expected to take the whippings without uttering a sound and to splatter blood on the altar. Needless to say, it wasn't uncommon for some to die during this festival. All for cheese. Between 14 and 20, Spartan boys participated in military service, forging even closer bonds with the same group they had been raised in. At 20, the Spartan was permitted to start growing his hair long, as well as the traditional beard. Not the style you saw in 300, but, well, pretty similar to what the Amish wear. A long, full beard with no mustache. Which is kind of ironic, because the Amish intentionally don't grow a mustache because it's associated with war. Someone should say something. And between 20 to 30, a Spartan was permitted to marry, but he still had to live with his herd until 30. At which point, if he had done everything correct and hadn't snapped under the pressure, he was now a Spartiate, a member of Spartan society. A hard, tough life. And if you didn't cut it, you would be forced to shave your beard and wear clothing that identified you as a coward or a failure. But that's all for the boys. What about the girls? As Sparta was the only Greek state to require education for its fairer citizens, they were ahead of their time. Girls were not examined at birth, nor left to die on a mountain somewhere, but were trained in athletics and taught how to read and write. They could even own land and divorce their husbands freely and legally. As the Helots took care of the farming, Spartan women were not expected to perform any domestic activities, except one very important task. Make babies. Proper Spartan babies. This might sound like women were viewed as nothing more than baby factories, but that's far from the case. In a society where there are so few desired people, childbearing Spartan women were treated with respect and honor. Childbirth was comparable to the men's military obligation, and in fact there were only two ways to get your name on a gravestone in Sparta. The first was to die in battle. The second was to die in childbirth. Both were seen as the ultimate sacrifice. Now in the mid-6th century, Sparta was by far the strongest power in Greece, but expansion of the state had stopped. Looking north, the Spartans pursued a policy of alliance with their neighbors. Elis in the west agreed after the Spartans freed them from a tyrant who had seized control of the Olympic Games. In Corinthia, another tyrant was expelled, 
Arcadia was given a choice, join or die. They chose to join. But the region of Argolis, where the powerful city of Argos sat, was not included in this new alliance. Argos had earned the animosity of the Spartans earlier in the 7th century when the two cities locked horns, and Sparta would not forget this grudge. This union of Sparta and its allies, also called the Peloponnesian League, was formed under the premise of mutual defense, with Sparta at the reins. They would band together in war and seek out similar allies at home and abroad. But first, let's go show Argos who's boss. In 494 BC, Sparta and friends marched to Argos and defeat the Argives at the Battle of Sepea, and the city would never challenge Spartan dominance again. Tyrants and enemies of Greece beware. Oh, but wait a second. 494 BC, that's just four years before the Battle of Marathon. Because while Sparta considers itself the true champion of the Hellenes, while keeping one eye on its slaves, there is another polis becoming a powerful contender for that title. In fact, they're so confident in their abilities that they just agreed to help the subjugated Ionian Greeks. Surely they're not going to pick a fight with the Persian Empire. Oh, they just burned down Sardis. Oh, that's not good. Well, not Sparta's problem. Little city-states shouldn't play with matches, right, Athens? But before we get to that, we'll be taking a look at the early days of that magnificent city, before the Parthenon, before democracy, before they decided it was a good idea to challenge the strongest force in the world. So join me next time as we discuss Athens on the podcast History of Our World. To learn more about the ancient Greek music performed by Gregorio Paniagua and his musicians, visit HarmoniaMundi.com. Support their hard work by purchasing the album from iTunes, Amazon, or from wherever you get your music. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 37, Athens. 11,000 years ago, when humanity was young, a great empire emerged from an island in the Atlantic Ocean. Named after the great titan Atlas, this empire of Atlantis stretched deep into Europe, Egypt, and the Mediterranean, enslaving and conquering all to satisfy their tremendous greed. It seemed as if nothing could stop this onslaught, yet just when all was feared lost, the city-state of Athens, located in eastern Greece, gathered up allies to make a stand. The fighting raged on, even after their allies, the other Greek cities, abandoned the resistance. But the Athenians persevered against the Atlanteans, finally defeating their armies and liberating a grateful Egypt. Shortly after, a powerful earthquake struck down Atlantis, destroying the island and sinking it beneath the waves. It is said that it was punishment from the gods for their sinful ways. Or at least that's what Plato claimed, and even his contemporaries were arching their collective eyebrows at this, wondering if their esteemed teacher was completely off his rocker. And while plate tectonics has pretty much proved that no island the size of Libya ever existed off the coast of Spain, this story perfectly encapsulates how the Athenians viewed themselves, the true champions of Greek culture and ideals. What, you'd rather have Sparta in charge, with their slaves and their weird sadist cheese rituals? You know you want the freedom that democracy offers. And if you didn't know that, then it's time you were educated through force by Zeus. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. After all, Athens is a very old city, and before those halcyon days of democracy, philosophy, and hemlock tea, 
there was a city near a hill, shrouded in myth and ruled by kings. The old legends state that the first king was the demigod Cacrops, who was commonly depicted as being a serpent from the waist down. I'm going to say it's for that reason why historians don't like to believe he exists. Well, it's under his reign that Athena and Poseidon supposedly held a contest for who would be patron god of this yet unnamed city. Poseidon created a saltwater spring and the first horse, sort of a mixed bag, but Athena offered an olive tree, far more useful and tasty, and thus she won. The city is renamed Athens, and for hundreds of years a series of semi-mythical kings ruled, including the slayer of the Minotaur, Theseus. He is also responsible for spreading Athenian culture and values throughout Attica, so that every village and town in the region identified themselves as Athenian. Mycenaean Athens later participated in the Trojan War, and was the only city to successfully withstand the Dorian invasion, although at a heavy price. The Oracle of Delphi predicted that the only way Athens would fall was if the king remained unharmed. So Kodros, the current king of Athens, disguised himself as a peasant, made his way into the Dorian camp, and provoked a group of soldiers into attacking and killing him. His true identity as king revealed in death, the Dorians feared that the gods would now deny them victory, and they left the city unscathed. Kodros's sacrifice inspired the Athenians to completely abolish the monarchy, as they believed no one could ever match such nobility. Instead of a single king, they would split the position into three roles. The Archon Basileus would be responsible for religious matters, the Polemarch would lead the military, and the eponymous Archon, the political and legislative head. This last position also had the honor of getting to lend his name to the year, sort of a neat little bonus. That word Archon, by the way, means ruler, and also applies to a group of six men below these three, for a total of nine Archons controlling the government. But it doesn't stop there, because below these lawmakers were various councils and offices, including the Assembly, a group open to free men 20 years of age, and the Areopagus, a ruling body made up of retired Archons who advised the current Archons on laws and government matters. Not very democratic, you're thinking, right? Nope, the early system was amazingly complex and overtly favored the wealthiest citizens. As an Archon, you didn't want to stir the pot too much because you wanted to have a comfortable retirement, right? Still, despite this system, or maybe because of it, Athens was mostly stable and successful in the centuries following the Dorian invasion. While the rest of Greece went through their dark ages struggling to rebuild their societies, life went on pretty uninterrupted for the Athenians, specifically a mostly agricultural life. At this time, there was plenty of land in Attica, and while the soil wasn't good for much, it adequately supported the population, with enough food left over to export, and really good clay for pottery. Yet as the population increased and arable land became harder to claim, the poorest farmers struggled to produce a surplus off the land. When times were bad, they turned to their richer neighbors for support. They would borrow seeds to plant and plow in their own plot, and then come harvest time return the loan with food and part-time work on the neighbor's farm. Now this is a fine system as long as everyone's satisfied using food and labor as currency. But towards the end of the 7th century, the Lydian invention of money had arrived in Greece, and boy did it shake things up. The friendly seed-borrowing way of life was abandoned for something more... profitable. So let's say that same poor farmer needs a bag of seed. Okay, the wealthy neighbor now agrees to loan the seed for an agreed-upon future price of the fully grown grain. Let's say 5 gold coins. Whatever. But suppose the farmer has a bad harvest, or the price of grain has dropped, and they can only get about two gold coins for it. Well, when that neighbor comes to collect and the money isn't there, the poor farmer has few options available to him. He might be able to work off the debt, 
if he's lucky, but most likely his own farm would be seized, or even worse, he and his family might become slaves. Legally, there was nothing they could do. After all, the same wealthiest citizens benefiting from this law were the ones enforcing it. You could even be sold and sent throughout the Mediterranean, and this is where the law really rubbed people the wrong way. Slavery is one thing. Oh, sure, no one's saying that's a bad thing. But the enslavement of fellow Athenians? What are we, a bunch of Spartans? Oh yes, many agreed the laws were wrong and needed to change. But who would step up to do so? The first lawmaker on record is Draco, around 620 BC. The term draconian originates from him, and that should give you an idea what kind of laws he promulgated. Most of his reforms dealt with murder and crime, and most of the punishments involved execution for the offender, even for simple crimes like stealing a loaf of bread. When asked why death was appropriate for such a wide range of offenses, a quote attributed to him reads like this, Small ones deserve that, and I have no hire for the greater crimes. But Draco did nothing to alleviate the social inequality. Enslavement for debt was still commonplace, and to really throw gas on the fire, wealthy landlords routinely exported grain to other more profitable markets, thus further straining the food-producing capabilities of Attica. Compounded by the heavy and brutal laws that never quite seemed to punish the rich, Athens had fractured into three camps, if you will, depending on where you lived and your economic status. The men of the plain were the landowners, favoring a continuation of the oligarchic rule. The men of the coast could be seen as middle class, craftsmen and artisans, and favored a more balanced government. Finally, the men of the hill were the poorest farmers and inhabitants of Attica. They had suffered the most under the debt-to-slavery system and were after a democratic government where they could have a voice. Neither camp was really fond of the other, but all agreed. Civil war loomed unless something was done. Next to take on the challenge was the wealthy and educated statesman Solon. Appointed eponymous archon in 594 BC, Solon was liked by the rich because he came from aristocratic stock, while his reputation as wise and fair enamored him to the lower classes. He took the office with a simple task, make everyone happy and ensure no one kills each other. Well, I believe President Lincoln said it best when he reflected that you can never please all the people all of the time. To Solon's credit, he did his best to give each side support, but it seemed that for every law he passed, there was something to complain about from the other side. For instance, for the lower classes, he finally outlawed enslaving Athenians for debt, and he even managed to track down those who had been sold abroad. Somehow. No one's really quite sure how. And always the popular move, cancelled outstanding debts. Hooray! My favorite kind of lawmaker. Now this is great if you were in debt. Not so great if you were the debt holder. To compromise, Solon assured debt holders that the benefits of not having a massive social uprising outweighed whatever paycheck they would have received. And, bonus, you get to keep any land you've already seized. Which also means, sorry poor folk, you don't get your land back. Sorry about that. Solon also banned the export of any agricultural product except olive oil, which Athens produced in abundance. You could spin this as a national security sort of deal, in that in case there was a grain shortage, at least we could feed ourselves. And this really was great for the poor, which the soil of Attica could barely afford to feed anyway. But let's say I'm a wealthy grain merchant. Whatever I produce off my own land, I should be able to do whatever I want with. Well, to this Solon says, tough nuggies. There's no real give-and-take thing here. Although to keep the wealthy happy, Solon continued the practice of reserving all the best government jobs for the top elite, thus ensuring archons would only come from the aristocracy. 
But then again, he also expanded some of the offices to include a wider range of participants from various family backgrounds, and permitted all male citizens, sorry ladies, regardless of economic status, to serve in the Helialia, basically a big jury that oversaw any case from simple civil matters to the trial of Socrates in 399 BC. I know that getting jury duty doesn't sound like that big an honor, but put it this way. The government is now recognizing you as a citizen, and this is one of the membership fees. If you want, we can go back to the old way, the one where you're one missed payment away from becoming a slave. There's that route, too. Needless to say, this was a welcome move. Now, I'm not going to drone on anymore with the rest of his laws and reforms. After all, we've covered quite a few lawmakers in our time, but you can see that these back-and-forth measures at least attempt to satisfy everyone. Solon, commenting on his accomplishments later with a bit of poetry, wrote, Such power I gave the people as might do, abridged not what they had, now lavished new. Those that were great in wealth and high in place, my counsel likewise kept from all disgrace. Before them both I held my shield of might, and let not either touch the other's right. Except, remember what Lincoln said, he can never please all of the people all of the time. Plutarch remarks, when these laws were enacted, some came to Solon every day, to commend or dispraise them, and to advise, if possible, to leave out or put in something. Many criticized the laws and desired him to explain and tell the meaning of such and such a passage. Knowing that to do so was useless, but not to do so would bring ill will, he was desirous to bring himself out of all straits and to escape all displeasure. In short, enough people bothered the heck out of him, and he bugged them in turn, and, wanting to leave on a high mark, Solon packed his bags and left Athens for ten years. He claims it was to see if the city could adapt to his laws, but really, if he had stayed any longer, I think he would have had a nervous breakdown. On his sabbatical, he traveled to distant lands such as Egypt, where he learned the aforementioned tale of Atlantis, and also stopped by the Lydian kingdom to hang out in the court of King Croesus, whom you might recall met his end against Cyrus the Great. Yet for all Solon's efforts and attempts to reform Athens into a stable society, no less than five years after his departure, all the discontent bubbled up again. The wealthiest citizens were infuriated that they had been deprived of the debts owed to them, and many clung to their government positions, even refusing to step down once their term was up. For the poor, well, yes, the slavery issue had been dealt with, but there was a bigger problem. Serving in a jury is all fine and dandy, but this is the most participation in government they'll ever see. All the top positions are still the exclusive realm of the elites, and to add insult to injury, remember the Areopagus? That council that retired archons comfortably sit for life? They're exempt from the judgments of the Heliolia, meaning that ultimately, really, very little has fundamentally changed. Well, enough's enough. The men of the hill, the camp of the poorer classes agree it's time for a radical shift in leadership. They can't bring back a king, no one would dare go for that, but there is the possibility of a tyrant, someone who could wield total authority, bypass all those rotten old men's clubs, and do it all in the name of the people. And remember, tyrant has no negative connotations yet. It simply means someone who rules with absolute power, exactly what was needed to break up the elite groups. To this they approach an Athenian general named Pisistratus, a war hero from a recent battle with the nearby city of Megara, and a man with a reputation as a populist. They offer to back him as tyrant of Athens, and he gladly agrees. But, um, uh, how does one walk into a deeply ingrained bureaucratic oligarchy and announce you are now the boss of everyone? Why, theater, of course! This is Greece, after all. What better place to do so? 
In 561 BC, a bloodied and injured Pisistratus entered the Athenian Agora, that's the marketplace, riding in a beaten-up carriage pulled by two wounded mules. People rushed to his side, shocked to see their popular leader in this state, and inquired as to what had happened. He explained that thugs hired by his political rivals did this to him, those scoundrels! Whether or not his injuries were self-inflicted has been theorized by numerous writers as early as Herodotus. To protect against further attacks, he needed bodyguards, preferably ones supplied at the taxpayer's expense, of course. The assembly, that group of male citizens, agreed to his request and voted to supply him with a personal cohort of club-wielding citizens, to which Pisistratus took them up the Acropolis and declared before all he was now tyrant of Athens. Ah, the old switcheroo. He rules for about five years before he's expelled by decree of the other two social groups, the wealthy men of the plain and the middle-class men of the coast. Their political alliance, however, does not last long thereafter, and the leader of the coast men, one Megacles by name, reaches out to Pisistratus, offering his party support if he'll just marry his daughter. The ex-tyrant agrees to return, although the staggering around bleeding technique isn't going to work again. He's going to need something way over the top, something so dramatic and silly that there's no way people would buy it. Or as Herodotus puts it, The Greeks have never been simpletons. For centuries past, they have been distinguished from other nations by superior wits. And of all Greeks, the Athenians are allowed to be the most intelligent. Yet it was at the Athenians' expense that this ridiculous trick was played. Pisistratus re-entered Athens riding in a fancy chariot, accompanied by musicians, dancers, armed supporters, and most notably, a tall woman dressed exactly as the goddess Athena, in full armor. As they drove through the town, his supporters shouted out how Athena herself was welcoming Pisistratus back into her city, and the people ate it up. He was appointed tyrant for the second time in 556 BC. Now, I'm sure no one actually thought it was the goddess herself. Well, maybe a few really dense folk, but it must have been done with such finesse that no one would believe him to be a bad guy. But his re-entry into the city was predicated solely on the promise of an arranged marriage between himself and the daughter of the Coast Faction's leader. And when it came time to, um, seal the deal, Pisistratus wasn't up to the task. Megacles was furious at this insult and managed to unite all of the tyrant's enemies against him and exile Pisistratus from Athens a second time in 555 BC just a year after his return. That didn't last very long, did it? Except, hold your horses, dear listeners, the story's not over just yet. Over the next roughly ten years, Pisistratus waited his turn, investing in gold and silver mines in Thrace and northern Greece, and they paid off big returns. Using this wealth, he was able to buy the support of many wealthy allies in the city and nearby areas, as well as a large mercenary army. The theatrics had gotten him diddly-squat. Now it's time to fight. In 546, Pisistratus landed his army at Marathon and marched towards Athens, taking care to let everyone know his intentions. Farmers watched him advance towards the city, doing nothing to stop his progress. But Athens had obviously heard the news and had organized its hoplite soldiers against him. Pisistratus surprised the defenders by attacking midday in the hot Athenian sun, a time when heavily armored soldiers in metal suits aren't quite at their peak and granted amnesty to any who laid down their weapons. They did so, and Athens, after three attempts, was finally his. The lower classes were happy to see their tyrant return, and eagerly awaited his changes, while the wealthy elite begrudgingly accepted his rule. 
Would he be greedy and treat the city as his plaything, or go on an execution spree, drenching the city in blood? Maybe he would, or maybe he wouldn't be that bad. And you know what? For a tyrant, it turns out Pisistratus was a pretty decent ruler. To aid the lower classes who had stuck by him through thick and thin, he redistributed the land of certain elite families, and by certain, I mean his enemies, and allowed the poor to take out interest-free loans from the government. He encouraged an agricultural shift over to cash crops like olives and grapes, which he rightfully reasoned would enlarge the city's coffers. This was also followed with a simple 5-10% to tax on all produce, which would be paid for with Athens' first silver coins, featuring the head of the goddess on one side and her owl on the reverse. To encourage economic growth, he funded a series of building projects, either paid for by himself or with the new taxes, and these included the first aqueduct into the city and the restoration of the Temple of Athena on the Acropolis. Pisistratus even promoted himself as a champion of culture, organizing festivals celebrating the works of Homer and commissioning the first written copies of the Iliad and Odyssey, creating definitive versions of the beloved tales. Under the tyranny of Pisistratus, Athens was peaceful and productive. Not exactly what you think of when you hear the word tyranny. So was there anything bad about him? Well, I mean, he did pack government offices with his friends and supporters, gave away the land of his enemies who legally owned that land, he exiled the ones he really didn't like, and some have argued that the reason he kept things so peaceful was because an armed Athens might turn their anger against him. Yet when he died in 527, there was no chaos, no revolution. The tyranny simply passed on to his two sons, Hippias and Hipparchus, who ruled together as co-tyrants. The early years of their reign are without incident, mostly continuing their father's legacy and promoting the arts. But if their father ever entertained dreams of a golden era of persistrated rulers, well, he would have croaked earlier had he known how fast his hard work would unravel. In part two of our survey of Athens, we pick up with the end of the persistrated tyranny. Did it fall apart because of war? Finances? Glory? Or does it have everything to do with a lover spurned? To learn more about the ancient Greek music performed by Gregorio Paniagua and his musicians, visit HarmoniaMundi.com. Support their hard work by purchasing the album from iTunes, Amazon, or from wherever you get your music. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 38, Democratic Tyranny. The year is 514 BC, and the two sons of Pisistratus named Hippias and Hipparchus have been co-tyrants of Athens for a little over 10 years now. Hippias, the older of the two, concerned himself with matters of the state and was an adept ruler, while Hipparchus, being younger, preferred to use his position differently. He loved the arts and brought in many notable poets and musicians to Athens, but he also had a tendency for being hot-tempered, especially when it came to love. Now it so happens that Hipparchus had fallen in love with a young man named Harmodius, but when his advances were denied, the co-tyrant decided to retaliate in a particularly nasty way. The Panathenaea was coming up, and all of Athens would come out to celebrate this event. Think of it as a big festival with games and poetry competitions and good food, all dedicated to everyone's favorite goddess, Athena. 
Of course, no religious event would be complete without a sacrifice, and to carry the knives to do this were the basket carriers, a group of virgin girls selected for their chastity and devotion. Hipparchus informs the younger sister of Harmodius that she is to carry a basket in the parade. What an honor! So kind of him, especially in light of that whole nasty business between him and the older brother. What a guy. Yes, well, scorned lovers and all that. The day of the games, Hipparchus addresses the crowd and the basket carriers, and publicly declares that Harmodius's younger sister can't carry a basket after all, for only virgins have this honor. Ooh, low blow. The girl is horrified and runs off crying. Hermodius and his lover, Aristogiton, were appalled at this insult and agree to do the only reasonable thing, assassinate Hipparchus. They gathered supporters and waited till a day when Hipparchus would participate in a parade. As the crowd lined the street to watch the procession of government officials, religious figures, athletes, and others march in the parade, the assassins waited, concealing their daggers within their robes. Yet while they waited for the opportune moment to strike, they saw a fellow conspirator chatting up Hippias, the other co-tyrant, and fearing that the plan was being revealed, rushed the procession, slaying Hipparchus. Harmodius is killed on the spot by the guards, and his lover Aristogiton is taken to the prisons to be tortured. Hippias no doubt mourned his brother's death, but his co-tyrant couldn't help but wonder. Where are the assassins coming for him? He rushed down to the prison and demanded Aristogiton tell him of their plans. The prisoner remarked that if he were spared, he would reveal everything. Hippias extended his hand as a promise to do so, but Aristogiton spits on the ground, admonishing him for giving out his hand to the murderer of his brother. Well, this enraged Hippias so much that he took out his own dagger and stabbed the assassin to death. Now the tyrant had a problem. The only person who knew of the conspiracy was dead. Who else might be out there? Plotting, waiting, biding their time. They could be everywhere, even in the government. And so Hippias, terrified that his assassination could come at any time, sank into paranoia and cruelty, exiling those he feared would turn against him, imprisoning others, and executing the worst. He needed to be stopped, but no one in Athens had the strength to do so. What the city actually needed, then, was another conspiracy. When Pisistratus took over for the third time, he had banished numerous aristocratic families that had given him such agita the last two times he was there. At last, now was their chance to stage a comeback. Knowing that they were no match for Hippias' guard, the exiled families do something really crafty. They donate a brand new temple at Delphi, and then donate some more money to the oracle so that she better interprets the gods' messages. This donation worked. Every time a Spartan citizen went to see the oracle, regardless of the question they asked, they were given the same answer. Liberate Athens! But I just wanted to know if I should have the wedding on Friday or Saturday. Liberate Athens! Well, the Spartans eventually agreed. After all, they did love deposing tyrants. And under one of their kings, Cleomenes, they marched off to Athens, defeated the army Hippias had assembled, and blockaded him on the Acropolis. After capturing his children, the tyrant finally surrendered to the Spartans and was exiled from Athens in 510 BC. Oh, and after that, the Spartans just went home. Mission accomplished. Now, the tyranny hadn't been in place long enough that Athens was now scrambling to re-establish government, and the laws of Solon had remained unchanged. But old rivalries quickly flared up again, and without that strong central authority, people quickly fell back into class struggles. On one hand was the Archon Isagoras coming to power in 508. 
He was a hit with the elite for his laws revoking the rules of citizenship put into place under Solon. Opposing him was Cleisthenes, also an aristocrat, but sympathetic to the needs of the masses. He made promises to include common folk in his new vision of Athenian government, and you can imagine this made him pretty popular. Of course, this also made him dangerous to the power-holding elite, and a nervous Asagoras called back the Spartans to aid him in removing Cleisthenes. King Cleomenes of Sparta dug up something about Cleisthenes. We're not totally sure what, but most suspect it has something to do with some family curse. I'm not making this up. Apparently, it was bad enough that Cleisthenes left town to cope with the fallout. And that might have been enough to stop this people's rebellion once and for all. But then the Spartan got greedy. Cleomenes banished roughly 700 families who supported Cleisthenes, a substantial number, and then attempted to dissolve the council, the body of which citizens could sit on. This pushed the Athenians too far, and the city poured out to fight back against this injustice. They blockaded the Spartan king and Asagoras the Archon on the Acropolis for two days before finally allowing the Spartans to leave. Asagoras escaped somehow. Maybe they dressed him up as a Spartan? But 300 of his supporters were captured, tried in court, and executed. Cleisthenes and the 700 families were welcomed back to Athens with open arms. The time of the oligarchy had passed. Now it's the people's turn. Note that I've been deliberately avoiding the term democracy so far, because while some argue Cleisthenes is the father of democracy, he called his system isonomia, political equality. Just something to know. Athens had expelled the enemies of her people, but there was one more obstacle to overcome, a humiliated Sparta. Cleomenes was not yet done with this impudent city, and sought to restore Asagoras, this time as tyrant. Hey, I know I said Sparta hates tyranny, but it's a different story when it's your own tyrant. Anyway, Cleomenes is joined by his co-king Demaratos. Remember, the Spartans have two kings, and they summon the Peloponnesian League to make war on Athens. They claim the fight is just because they had been tricked from the start by the oracle, and now Athens was ruled by a mob and only they can free it. From the north, the city of Halkis sent soldiers, their ships raiding the coastlines. To the northwest, the men of Boeotia captured small cities friendly to Athens, all under the orders of their Spartan commanders. But when they finally got a glimpse of what they were actually up against, the tides quickly changed. This was no ragtag group of peasants, but the powerful army of Athenian hoplites, decked out in full armor, fueled by patriotic fervor. The Corinthians, members of the League but also allies of Athens, bowed out. They couldn't fight against their friends. Even King Demaratos questioned the validity of this engagement and took his forces home. But the Athenians would not stand down. They go on the offensive against Halkis and Boeotia, taking their soldiers hostage and annexing some of their lands. They're even able to protect the small city of Plataea from Thebes, a major city in Boeotia, and acquire a loyal ally in them. Reflecting on this stunning turnaround, Herodotus writes, It shows how splendid a thing is political equality. The Athenians under the tyrants were no better soldiers than their neighbors, but once they were rid of them, they were far the best of all. Once they were free, every man was zealous in his own interest. Cleisthenes becomes Archon in 508 BC, and set about drastically reforming the government, aiming to prevent any future tyrannies and prevent the elite from gaining too much again. For starters, he radically changed the way Athenians identified themselves. For hundreds of years, Athens had been based on four ancient tribes. If you couldn't trace your lineage to one, you might as well accept that you'll never get very far in life. Realizing this system will consistently produce ugly rivalries, he abolishes it, 
instead establishing ten tribes not based on history, but where you live, and further breaking that down by region, village, and so on. Next, the council is reborn as the Boule of 500, each tribe sending 50 members chosen by lot annually, completely random, regardless of personal wealth or power. Archons still retain their positions and responsibilities, but each tribe is also appointing three additional military leaders, representing infantry, cavalry, and a general, the Stratagos. By spreading out the military leadership, this ensured more discussion and war, and prevented one man from gaining too much power. Also on the list of reforms is the curious and strangely awesome practice of exiling a citizen for ten years called ostracism. Named after the Ostracon, a pottery shard with the guilty party's name on it, anyone who was seen as a threat to the democratic process could be voted to basically go away for ten years. Citizens wrote the name of the intended on these pottery shards, and if the person received at least 6,000 votes, and it's so long, their property would remain safe during this time, and once the ten years are up, you're more than welcome to come back. It's kind of peculiar, but it's also kind of great. You could see how this could be abused, but also how it could be really satisfying. Just saying. The reforms of Cleisthenes are the first steps towards a true Athenian democracy, but as to the rest of his life, the history disappears, unfortunately. Still, his laws are upheld, and things look promising going into the year 499 BC. Down in Sparta, a tyrant from the Ionian city of Miletus, one Aristagoras, has come to the court of King Cleomenes with an urgent request. The barbarian armies of the Persian Empire are coming to plunder the wealthy Greek cities of Ionia, and only Sparta can save them. They're wealthy, you know, did I mention that? Oh good. Plus the Persians are pushovers, they wear pants for Zeus's sake. Totally easy peasy, what do you say? Keep in mind, Aristagoras is the same turncoat we met in episode 26, who after failing to take the island of Naxos for the Persians, and not having the money to pay them back, instigated a revolt in the Ionian cities. Desperate for allies to save his bacon, he goes to the most logical choice, Sparta. But Cleomenes refuses his request, saying, My dear Milesian guest, leave Sparta before sundown, because it doesn't matter how smoothly you make your case to the Spartans, if what you want is to lead them away from the sea for three months. It's not that the Spartans are going to get homesick, it's that three months overseas is three months too long to be away from a homeland always on the verge of a massive slave rebellion. Plus, did he really think that gold would tantalize the Spartans? Did he not eat in one of their mess halls? Well, the Spartans were out, but all hope wasn't lost. Aristagoras next turns to the newly ascendant Athenians, who have no such compunctions about leaving the city, and especially after learning that their hated ex-tyrant Hippias had gone over to the Persians. Ho-ho, oh, now it's personal. Athens sends over twenty ships carrying her brave soldiers. And with thoughts of their new freedoms inspiring their actions, these soldiers accompanied the Ionian fighters towards Sardis, the seat of the western satrapy, where, accidentally or not, the city was put to the torch. Oops. Oh, the Athenians shook hands with their allies and beat a hasty tactical advance in the direction of home, wishing the Ionians the best of luck with whatever happens next. But we already know the answer to that. The Ionians were punished severely for the revolt, and the Athenians prepared for an anticipated retaliation. In the late summer of 490 BC, the armies of Persia had arrived on the beaches of Marathon. No one came to Athens' defense, save one. The tiny city of Plataea had not forgotten the Athenians' kindness, and sent a force to aid their ally. If you want to hear the details of the battle, re-listen to episode 26. But to quickly summarize, after a stunning charge, the Greeks penned in the lightly armored Persians, denying their cavalry the room to maneuver. 
After a bloody struggle, the Persians hightailed it back to their boats, after inflicting shockingly few casualties. When the news reached Darius the Great, Shah and Shah, he made preparations for a massive retaliatory force, but Egypt rebelled against his rule, and while overseeing its suppression, died there in 486 BC. Succeeding him was his son, Kashaya Arsha, Xerxes, and after suppressing the rebellion in Egypt as well as in Babylon, made preparations for the full-scale invasion of Greece in 483 BC. And that's where we'll leave off, because in the next episode it's time for the greatest struggle of the ancient world, the Second Persian Invasion of Greece, or commonly called the Greco-Persian War. It's got action, drama, betrayal, men with impeccable abs, and giant monsters with demon soldier handlers. Okay, maybe not those last two, but it sure is exciting! Are we looking at the fate of Western civilization here? Would the world be different today if the Greeks lost? Why is this still a sensitive topic nearly 2,000 years later? You'll just have to tune in and listen. Next time on the Podcast History of Our World. To learn more about the ancient Greek music performed by Gregorio Paniagua and his musicians, visit harmoniamundi.com. Support their hard work by purchasing the album from iTunes, Amazon, or from wherever you get your music. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 39. The Persian Wars Invasion. It's mid-November, 486 BC. After suffering from a month of severe illness, Darius the Great dies after a reign of 36 years. His accomplishments were many, adding modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan to the empire, restructuring the system of satrapies, even instituting the world's first postal service. Yet all that was overshadowed by his greatest failure, the defeat at Marathon. Darius never got a chance at redemption because just as he was raising a new army, Egypt went into full rebellion, and then he got sick and died trying to patch that up, which left his 35-year-old son Xerxes in charge of the empire. If there's one Persian ruler who gets the worst PR, it's Xerxes. Nowadays, people know him as that weird, hairless bronze guy in the 300 movies, but before that, his image was completely defined by Herodotus, everyone's favorite historian-slash-gossip journalist. He basically paints a picture of the Persian as an overly emotional, unstable, intolerant despot, someone unworthy to follow in his grandfather, Cyrus the Great's, footsteps. And yeah, what do you expect? He's writing from the perspective of the invaded. Of course he'll be biased. It's not like Xerxes came into Greece offering peace or anything. Hmm. We kinda did, though. Ah, we'll get there soon enough. Anyway, after he took the crown, the new Shah went straight to work, using his dad's newly mobilized army to crush the Egyptian rebellion, and then having to stop a similar revolt in Babylon. Two years after he had taken the throne, everything was once again quiet, and the debacle in Greece didn't really seem like something worth revisiting. It's so far away, and what's the point, really? All his father's advisors, including his uncle, agreed, telling him it just wasn't worth it to go back. But his younger friends urged him to invade, including the general Mardonius, whom you might remember was the one who expanded Persian territory into Thrace, but lost his navy near Mount Athos in northern Greece. Daddy Darius had relieved him of his command, and he was aching at a chance to avenge this insult to his honor. Stuck between going to war or not, Xerxes did what all great leaders should do in these situations. 
he went to bed. Hopefully he'd come to a wise decision after a little snooze. Except that night, he was visited by ghosts. These things happen, you've got to realize. And they reprimanded him pretty badly for even considering not invading Greece. Well, that settled the argument almost immediately. Xerxes would bring the full might of the Persian Empire down upon these upstart barbarians, and no one would feel it worse than the Athenians, those toga-wearing arsonists. To bring the pain would be the largest fighting force yet seen in the world, an enormous conscript army pulled from all over the empire to fight under Xerxes' banner. Persians, Medes, Elamites, Babylonians, Bactrians, Libyans, Indians, Ethiopians, a massively monumental multicultural machine of war. Not to mention hundreds, possibly even a thousand warships supplied and manned by Phoenicians, Egyptians, Cypriots, and loyal or occupied Greeks. Ancient sources have this army coming in at two million, and while a creative guess, modern estimates have it closer to 300,000, which is still a ridiculously huge number. And of course, don't forget about the components of the baggage train following the army. The cooks, blacksmiths, stable hands, servants, entertainers, concubines. Just thinking about the logistics involved in maintaining and feeding this essentially mobile city, well, it's enough to make your brain hurt. But the Persians were masters of organization, and their excellent infrastructure ensured that the new recruits kept marching towards the central meetup where it all started at Sardis. Assembling the troops was easy. Getting them to Greece, ah, there's the rub. The first step was to make a clear path for the navy. To avoid losing another fleet off the coast of Mount Athos, Xerxes ordered a series of canals dug to avoid sailing around the windy and dangerous coast. These canals had the unfortunate habit of caving in on the workers who dug them until the Phoenicians showed them to dig twice as wide at the top than you want at the bottom. Mathematical. Second was how to get the army into Greece fast and in one piece. Transporting by boat wouldn't be practical, take far too long, and one bad storm could end the war before it even started. Just look up the Mongol invasion of Japan to see what I mean. The solution, therefore, was to build a massive pontoon bridge. Two, actually, right over the Hellespont, the strait of water that separates Europe and Asia Minor. These bridges would need to support the weight of hundreds of thousands of troops and animals on top, and need to be sturdy enough to withstand the unpredictable and often dangerous waters below. Not an easy task, and almost on cue, the first bridges built were torn apart in a storm. Xerxes was so livid at this failure that he ordered the engineers beheaded and the waters to be whipped, branded with red-hot irons, and cursed. Stupid waters. The next bridges were developed to be a combination pontoon suspension type bridge, stretching nearly 1,500 meters with thick cables of tightly woven flax and papyrus, and iron anchors weighing the whole thing down. On top of the hundreds of ships used as the bridge foundation were solid logs packed with dirt and paved over for a smooth walking surface. Even walls were built up to prevent the animals from seeing the water and getting spooked. The road to Europe was now clear. Xerxes and his forces left Sardis in 480 and made a stop at the ruins of Troy. While his priests offered libations to the dead Trojan heroes, he is reported to have sacrificed 1,000 cattle to Athena, the goddess of Troy, and announced he would avenge the destruction of the city by the Greeks. From there, it was a short journey to the Hellespont, where upon seeing the immense pontoon bridges and his gigantic army all assembled, Xerxes wept. There came upon me a sudden pity when I thought of the shortness of man's life 
and considered that of all this host so numerous as it is, not one will be alive when a hundred years are gone by. And then he wiped the tears from his eyes, gave his uncle a big hug, and gave the command to cross those bridges. It is said it took a whole week for the entire army to make the trip. Yikes. Now as you might be wondering, you can't go around digging up giant canals and moving all those people about without word getting around, and the Greeks knew exactly what was happening. It also didn't help that the Persians were sending ambassadors to the various Greek cities, allowing them to surrender early through tokens of earth and water, the Persians' favored way of submission. Some cities gave in, especially in the north. Others respectfully declined. And some, like Sparta and Athens, decided to break with diplomatic rules and get creative. Athens tossed the ambassadors into a prison cell, like common criminals, while Sparta yes, actually threw the Persians down a well, supposedly exclaiming, there's plenty of earth and water down there. <laughs> classic Sparta. To address the threat in 481 BC, every corner of the Greek world was invited to a council in Corinth. Truces were declared, transportation was arranged, and this is the first time we actually see the term Hellenes, all in the hope that the Greeks would abandon their fractured society and unite for the greater good. Yet almost from the get-go, there were problems. Crete refused to fight, claiming that the god Apollo demanded neutrality. Argos at first was willing to participate, even after fighting a bloody war with Sparta in 494, but bowed out after not being given a leadership position. Even the Greek tyrants of Syracuse and Akragas on Sicily attended the meeting, but they too left after not being made commanders. Now this part actually worked out in favor for the Greek Sicilians, because unbeknownst to them, Carthage had agreed to launch an attack on the island while the Persians attacked Greece. Ooh, sneaky. Therefore, it now seemed that only Athens, a few free islands, and Sparta's Peloponnesian League would be the defenders of Greece. Although the roster had changed quite a bit since we last looked at the two cities. Time for a recap. First up, fresh in our memories, Athens. The hero of Marathon, Miltiades, attempted to follow up his victory there by launching an attack on the Greek island of Paros, occupied by the Persians. The attack failed, and he was badly wounded in the leg. Now, you can't win them all, but the Athenians turned on their hero faster than you could say Dark Knight Returns. Under suspicion that his ambitions were a little too close to tyrannical, he was dragged before the assembly in a stretcher, his wounded since festered, and charged with deceiving the people punishable by death. However, in light of his service to Athens, it was agreed that instead he should be fined 50 talents of silver. That's about 1,300 kilograms, or about 2,800 pounds. An absurd amount designed to ruin him and prevent him from ever holding public office again. It worked, but not in the way the assembly predicted. Unable to pay the debt, he asked his son Cimon for help, but while Cimon pulled together the money, the hero of Marathon died. The gangrene had spread too far. In his place, the Athenians elected a new archon, the ambitious but highly capable Themistocles. More on him in a bit. Over in Sparta, remember the dual kingship of Cleomenes and Demaratos? Well, after Sparta had defeated Argos in war, Cleomenes was accused of accepting bribes for not totally destroying the city. This was never proven, but judging eyes followed the increasingly paranoid king everywhere, until he saw his chance to regain favor. The nearby island of Aena had defected to the Persians, and the Athenians had requested Sparta's aid in retaking the land. Cleomenes set off to arrest those leaders who had given in, but Demaratos, who did not like his co-monarch's heavy-handed ways, sought to undermine his authority back home. 
bad move. Cleomenes marches off to Delphi to bribe the Oracle into revealing that his co-monarch was illegitimate all along. <gasps> Scandalous. Demaratos flees to Persia of all places, and is given a place of honor next to Xerxes. But eventually the bribery is discovered, and while it was too late for Demaratos to return home, Cleomenes flees to Arcadia, a wanted man. There he attempts to foment an attack on his home city, but he's called back and pardoned. Apparently Sparta thought it would be easiest and safest just to keep a close eye on him. But according to the stories, once the king returned, he went mad, and fell into the habit of getting drunk and thwacking Spartan citizens in the face with his scepter. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Well, after enough people complained, his family had him locked up and placed under Helot guard. This imprisonment did not last very long, however. For the same night he was put into chains, Cleomenes terrified his guard into handing him a dagger, with which he flayed the skin from his legs before dealing a killing blow to the gut. A gruesome and altogether unspartanly way to go, especially for a king. No one's quite sure what brought on this fit of Greek seppuku, or if it wasn't suicide at all, but perhaps regicide to remove a deranged monarch but his half-brother and replacement Leonidas did all he could to move on from this incident and refocus Sparta's energy on the bigger issue at hand. Getting back to Themistocles for one second, during his Archonship he encountered what I call a threshold moment. I'm sure there's a better term for it, but that's what I'm calling it. Throughout history, there are these situations where a society or a leader or even a regular person has a choice to make that will, without being dramatic, change history. Yes, I know every decision literally changes history, just bear with me here. I'm talking about the big watershed moments, like Truman signing off on the bombing of Japan, or Caesar deciding not to spend March 15th snuggling with his wife at home. Anyway, the event in question concerns atomic number 47, silver. Southeast of Athens lay the silver mines of Laurion, worked by slaves, owned by the city, and a pretty steady source of income. In 483, the miners hit an extremely rich vein of the precious metal, so much so that Athens held a meeting to decide what to do with it. Many politicians wanted to spread the wealth in the form of one-time handouts, each Athenian citizen getting a piece of the treasure, like a tax rebate. But Themistocles proposed to take the money and construct a mighty fleet of triremes, warships with three rows of oars, hence the tri-prefix, and a powerful bronze-plated ram underneath the bow. These ships would protect Athens against the threat from the island of Aena, and more importantly the Persians. His opponents scoffed at this, accusing him of fear-mongering, but Themistocles had a gift for convincing people. He also had a powerful political weapon, ostracism, the Athenian method of expelling someone from the city for ten years, which he did against his rivals, and sent them packing. The vote passed in 482, and opposition to the trireme plan ended. Themistocles got his warships, and by 480, Athens had a fleet of 200, the largest navy of all the Greek cities. Okay, now that we're back on track in January of 480, Xerxes had just crossed over into Thrace, modern Bulgaria, and had captured some Greek spies. But rather than torture and execute them, he gave them a tour of his camp. He wanted the enormous size of his army known, probably to convince the cities to surrender rather than fight it out. The Hellenic Council was called again led by the Spartans, of course, no city would dare tolerate orders from an Athenian. Two questions were on the table. Where do we put the defenders? And what the heck are we going to do with the Oracle? She had been in a real doom and gloom mood ever since Xerxes had finished the crossing, and it was seriously eroding morale. 
Yes, she had been warning the cities to surrender rather than duke it out, but it's what she said to the Spartan and Athenians that was most concerning. To Sparta, she gave a dire prophecy. Either your glorious town shall be sacked by the children of Perseus, or in exchange, must all through the whole Laconian country mourn for the loss of a king, descendant of great Heracles. Alright, it's a, it's a toss-up. Either the city goes or the king does. But her response to Athens is decidedly less ambivalent. Wretches, why sit you here? Fly, fly to the ends of creation! The Athenians are stunned that she would be so freaked out. But then they remember that she could easily be bribed to say whatever. <clears throat> Cleomenes. And they demand that she reinterpret Apollo's message. Her second prophecy is far less hyperbolic. Safe shall the wooden wall continue for you and your children. Wait not the tramp of the horse, nor the footmen mightily moving over the land, but turn your back to the foe and retire. Yet shall a day arrive when you shall meet him in battle. Divine Salamis, you will bring death to women's sons. Wait, what are we talking about? Ugh, why does everything have to be a stupid riddle? Is it that hard to give a straight answer? <sighs> Still, this is one of those room-for-interpretation prophecies. And while the Hellenic Council was discussing strategy, this was on Themistocles' mind. The part about running away is pretty clear, but there are no giant wooden walls in Athens, unless you count the Trireme fleet. And Divine Salamis, well, that's an island about ten miles west of Athens in the Saronic Gulf. Perhaps she means to seek refuge behind the ships? Hmm. Well, it falls on Themistocles to come up with the initial plan of attack, and he convinces the Spartan commanders to go along with it. The combined Greek navy would try to hold the Straits of Artemisian in northern Euboea, the big island directly northeast of Attica. In the meantime, the Greek army would travel up to Thessaly in northern Greece, to the coastal pass of Tempe, where the rocky terrain and dense growth would put the Persians at a disadvantage. Over 10,000 infantrymen were dispatched, but as they closed in on their destination, a warning came from King Alexander I of Macedonia. This was a guy stuck in two worlds. His kingdom was viewed essentially as barbarian by the Greeks, yet he loved Greek culture, so much so that he proved his descent from Heracles, somehow, just to be permitted to compete in the Olympics. On the other hand, his kingdom was a vassal state to Persia, and resisting Xerxes would ruin him. Or, you know, cost him his life. Despite the risk, during the war, Alexander would play the part of friendly collaborator, appeasing the Persians but passing information and aid to his Hellenic neighbors. His envoys approached the Greek camp and urged them to retreat to a more defensible position. There were too many hidden routes, too many soldiers on their way. Retreat now before it's too late. The Spartan commander agrees and loads up the troops onto transport ships and returns back to Corinth for yet another meeting on what to do. It was now summer in 480. Xerxes was getting closer and a new location needed to be decided on. This time around, Themistocles convinces the council that the next best place to defend was the Pass of the Hot Gates, Thermopylae, not too far away from the original defensive spot. The pass itself is about two meters wide, with the sea on one side and cliffs on the other, making for a perfect defendable spot. If Xerxes was going to send troops down into Greece, he would have to use this road, and the Greeks would be waiting. Problem is, the best fighters in Greece, the Spartans, were currently celebrating the full moon festival of Apollo, which lasted for an entire month and prohibited them from fighting. Yet King Leonidas was granted permission to assemble a royal guard of 300 Spartiates to defend the pass. These men were not his normal guard, but all had to meet a common requirement. They needed to have living sons to continue the family name if things went bad. 
Joining them were 900 Helot attendants and light infantry, as well as a coalition force of Arcadians, Corinthians, Peloponnesians, and Boeotians. Altogether, Leonidas commanded an army of nearly 7,000. The first Persian scouts reached Thermopylae in mid-August, and what they saw there really confused them. It wasn't the wall that the Greeks had built, no, that was expected, but the Spartans, the baddest, toughest soldiers in the world, were doing calisthenics and having their hair combed. When this news was brought to Xerxes, he laughed and asked his VIP, the exiled Spartan king Demeritos, what was up with his countrymen. This, explained the king, was how the Spartans prepared for death. A little different, but to each their own. Xerxes gave the Greeks four days' peace in the hopes they would leave, but of course they didn't. On the fifth day, Xerxes sent out an ambassador, giving the Greeks one last chance to lay down their weapons and surrender. Leonidas's response? Molon labe, come and take them. The Battle of Thermopylae had begun. The first wave of attack came from volley after volley of arrow fire, in typical Persian fashion, but the Greeks, heavily armored with thick bronze shields, grouped together, easily shrugging it off. After that came the first Persian soldiers, who were easily repelled by the Greek phalanx formation. We talked a bit about this in the Sparta episode, but quick refresher, each hoplite stands shoulder to shoulder, big circular shields overlapping, and long spears poking out for jabbing. When the front line gets tired, they slink all the way to the back where they can rest, but the phalanx remains whole and unbroken, thus the unit never appears to tire or lose strength. It's just a big wall of metal and really sharp pokey spikes. Sure, the phalanx was weak from the back, but the road was too narrow to get around them. Against the Persians' lightly armored but numerous conscript army, which depended on maneuverability, the Greeks were superior. As Herodotus puts it, It became clear to all, especially Xerxes, that while he had plenty of combatants, he had but few warriors. Xerxes was so stunned at the total failure of this first wave that he ordered the immortals in for a second push that same day. These elite troops were skilled warriors, but the problem here is that their spears are shorter than the Greeks. Yeah, they were able to inflict some losses, but the battle quickly turned against them, and they were forced to retreat, thus ending the first day's conflict. The second day of fighting fared no better for the Persians, as the Greek phalanx proved too difficult to crack. The Spartans even employed methods to trick the enemy by fanning a retreat, only to spin around at the right moment and totally take the Persians by surprise. Some Spartiates were lost in this manner, but the unpredictable and ferocious nature of their attacks left a deep mark on the Persians, and they once again retreated, having failed to take the pass a second day in a row. Now Xerxes was furious. He had been watching the battle from a nearby hilltop and had been squirming in his throne to the degree in which the Greeks fought. It's not that these defenders couldn't be beaten, there were only a few thousand left after all, but how many more Persians would they take with them? A frontal assault was getting Xerxes nowhere there had to be a way around the gates. History remembers famous traitors, Quisling, Benedict Arnold, and add to that list, Ephialtes, a local man lured by the promise of Xerxes' gold who knew the secret of Thermopylae. There is a path above the cliffs that is difficult to reach without a guide, but once there, it's smooth sailing all the way around. That night, led by Ephialtes, the immortals went on the march, hoping to cover as much ground as they could before being noticed. Okay, hold the story for a second, because this has always bugged me. We need to give the Persians a little more credit here. Xerxes' men were absolutely climbing up those cliffs looking for a passage through Thermopylae. I mean, Cyrus had his troops scaling the sheer mountain walls of Sardis without issue. This should be a piece of cake. Ephialtes, if he even existed, probably just sped things up a bit. And another thing, the whole traitor label. 
Can you imagine what it's like to be a farmer, having a quarter of a million hungry people on your doorstep? What's going to happen when they come knocking? You going to offer them a bag of chips and tell them that's all you got? He wanted the armies out of his land as fast as possible before they devour everything in sight. It's a rotten decision to make, but I don't hold him in judgment. Just something to consider. Anyway, back to the story. Leonidas had placed a small contingent to guard the rear entrance to the pass, just in case the Persians discovered it. And now that guard had been alerted to the immortals. It was the sound of boots on dry leaves that gave them away. A little before dawn, the Spartan king learned of his grim situation and called for his officers. In response to what appeared to be the end for them, he decided to dismiss his Corinthian and Peloponnesian allies, either out of concern for their safety or for their loyalty, and kept his Boeotian companions. Of this were armies from two city-states, the Thebans, which stood by Leonidas even while their home city considered switching sides, and the brave Thespians, who stuck around because they enjoyed a bit of drama. I'm sorry, I haven't made a terrible joke in a while. Anyway, don't forget the rest of the Helots as well. It's not like the slaves had any choice in the matter. But this final moment, this would be the greatest, most inspirational battle of the ancient world. The last stand of the 300. Plus 400 Thebans, 700 Thespians, and about 700 Helots. So, last stand of the roughly 2100. Once dawn broke, Xerxes assembled his men, this time fielding cavalry as well as infantry. Leonidas had moved his remaining forces closer to the entrance of the path, where the road would be wider. This was a less defensible position, but it also freed up more Greeks to participate in the fighting. The Persians charged at the sound of thunderous horn blasts, throwing themselves at the defenders. The Greeks fought back, maintaining phalanx discipline, even slaying two brothers of Xerxes in the bloody fray. But their weapons had seen too much action in the last few days, and spears began to splinter and shatter. Deprived of their main weapon, the soldiers next turned to their short swords. But in such brutal close combat, the phalanx formation started to break down. Persian archers seized on this opportunity and rained death on the Greeks. It was in one of these volleys that Leonidas was cut down, to which a terrible struggle emerged for control of his corpse. The remaining Greeks desperately trying to prevent its retrieval by Xerxes. But by this time, the immortals had finally made it around the pass and closed in from the rear. Whatever Greeks remained banded together and fought to the last man, sword if they still had it, hands and teeth if they didn't, until none remained. The Battle of Thermopylae was over. The Greeks had lost control of the pass, but had shown Xerxes what only a few thousand of their warriors could do, take out nearly 20,000 of his army. Yet hopefully the oracle's prophecy would come true. A Spartan king had lost his life. Does this mean the city was safe now? Xerxes surveyed the carnage on the battlefield until he found the body of Leonidas, the one who had given him so much trouble. In very un-Persian-like behavior, he has the Spartan's head chopped off and the body crucified in a fit of rage. It's out of character for a Persian king, but perhaps he grieved for his two slain brothers? Or maybe he was furious that the invasion had been delayed by a week. Could be either. Regardless, the path to southern Greece, especially to Athens, was now clear. Revenge would soon be his. Next time on the podcast History of Our World, we take a look at the thrilling conclusion to the Greco-Persian Wars. This time with 100% more boats. Hey, Themistocles went to a lot of trouble getting those things built. It's time to use them. Plus one of the greatest feats of military trickery in history. And tons more battles. It's an action-packed, no-holds-barred kind of episode, that's for sure. To learn more about the ancient Greek music performed by Gregorio Paniagua and his musicians, visit HarmoniaMundi.com.
Support their hard work by purchasing the album from iTunes, Amazon, or from wherever you get your music. Hi, I'm Jordan Harbour from the Twilight Histories podcast, and I'm excited to introduce Rob Monaco's The Podcast History of Our World. Rob has created a show that to me is the perfect blend of entertainment and good history. And that's why it's become something of an addiction for me. If you haven't done so already, I highly recommend you subscribe. So without further ado, the show. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 40, The Persian Wars, Culmination. Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here obedient to their laws we lie. So read the words on the cenotaph at Thermopylae, marking the last stand of the Spartans, Thebans, and Thespians. It's a testament to their courage that even 2,500 years later, the battle is so prevalent in popular culture. Of course, popular culture also tells us that only 300 Spartans did all the fighting, but one step at a time, I think. I love that this scene from ancient history still captivates the imagination, but what people don't talk about was at the very same moment the Spartan king Leonidas and his men were holding the pass, the Athenian archon Themistocles was with the Greek navy on the task of defending the Straits of Artemisian. Fighting at sea in ancient times was a difficult and dangerous ordeal. Tactics and strategy essentially boiled down into two camps. The Persians preferred utilizing lighter, faster ships for boarding maneuvers. Latch onto an enemy ship, have your archers pepper the deck with arrows, and send in the troops to seize the prize. And while the Greeks did keep some marines on board for this kind of fighting, their main tactic was to employ heavier, sturdier ships with an underwater beak for ramming. The idea is to have the sailors, in unison, build up enough momentum that the trireme smashes into the side of an enemy vessel, puncturing it and sending it to a watery grave. A very effective technique, but this requires a skilled crew, as one out-of-sync rower can start a chain reaction of tangled oars. The Battle of Artemisian would be the first test of Athens' new state-of-the-art triremes, but the crew manning them? Greenhorns through and through. Hopefully their expedited training would be enough to save the day. Commanding the Greek fleet of about 280 was the Spartan Eurybiades. The Athenians made up nearly half that number, but everyone wanted a Spartan commander to lead, and Themistocles knew not to push the issue. That didn't stop him from bribing the Spartan into being more pliable, but hey, backroom politics is as old as the profession itself. The main goal here was to prevent the Persians from reaching Thermopylae and flanking Leonidas. Their numbers were unknown, but if it was anything like their army, then the Greeks had an uphill battle ahead of them. Still, were they not also outnumbered at Marathon? And how'd that turn out? Exactly, they got this. Ten Phoenician ships had been sent to scout out the straits and encountered a token force of three Greek triremes stationed there. The Greeks tried to flee, but were overtaken and defeated. Oops. The Phoenicians returned to the main fleet and reported how effortlessly they vanquished the enemy. The Persians, no doubt encouraged by this news, moved the fleet closer to the straits before deciding to anchor for the night. It's getting late in the day, and the destruction of the Greeks could wait until tomorrow. Except just like the calamity to befall Mardonius during the first invasion, as if on cue a powerful storm hit the area. 
The Greeks, stationed further south, had the good sense to beach their ships ahead of time, but the Persians with their massive fleet of almost 1,200 couldn't get all of them to the shore in time. Gale force winds and torrential rains tore into the ships, and when it was all over, nearly a third of the fleet had been destroyed. It's terrible, awful luck, no question about it. And if we're going with the 1200 number, that means that nearly 400 ships sank. And just think of all those people, the distances they traveled just to lose their lives without even seeing combat. It's just terrible. Good thing Xerxes wasn't around to see it, or he might have ordered another chastising of the oceans, and probably beheaded a few captains too, for good measure. Yet even with the storm, the Persians still drastically outnumbered the Greeks. But that doesn't mean they were going to just charge in guns a-blazing. Uh, arrows a-blazing? Whatever. The Persian admiral sends a detachment of 200 ships to travel around the east coast of Euboea and sneak up behind the Greeks. The old pincer move. And keep in mind that even without the ships for this flanking maneuver, the main Persian fleet still outnumbered the Greeks almost two to one. The first day of actual combat occurred concurrently with the first day of fighting at Thermopylae. The Spartan admiral Eurybiades ordered the ships out to attack, and the Persians engaged, confident that their numbers would be the deciding factor. As the Persians advanced in a wide crescent formation, the Greeks pulled back, grouping their triremes in a circle, bows pointed towards the enemy. Persian tactics dictated boarding procedures, and without a side to latch onto, the ships began circling around the triremes like sharks, looking for a weak spot. And then taking them by surprise, the Greeks burst out of their circle at full speed, crashing into the Persians and disabling numerous ships. In the chaos of sinking vessels, the Greeks fell back. The Persians did not give chase, and the first day of fighting ended. Oh, and because you can't make this stuff up, there was another storm that night. And guess what happened to the 200 ships off Euboea? You got it! All slammed against the rocky coast and dashed to pieces. So much for that plan. The second day came, and was pretty uneventful. A few Persian patrol boats were captured, some reinforcements from Athens arrived, but mostly both sides spent their time repairing the storm damage. Now on the third day of fighting, the Persians gave it all they had. The Greeks countered with the best they could, but clever tricks would not work again. At the end of the day's struggle, both sides had lost nearly a hundred ships, but while a drop in the bucket for the Persians, this was a blow to the Greeks. And when the news arrived that Thermopylae had been lost, Eurybiades wasted no time giving the order to retreat. There was no more strategic value in holding Artemisian. They would reconvene at the agreed-upon location at Salamis and go from there. Meanwhile on land, Xerxes and his army moved straight through the Boeotian countryside, the land north of Attica. Many cities submitted like Thebes, with Alexander of Macedon doing the negotiating, but others were not given the chance. Plataea and Thespia are razed to the ground, the first for participating at Marathon, the latter for the delay at Thermopylae. Boeotia was firmly under Xerxes' control, which meant it was only a matter of time before he reached Athens. Now, as you can imagine, the city was in a bit of a panic. Make no mistake, Xerxes was coming. The only question was whether to stay and fight or run away. Themistocles had done his best convincing the city that the only option was to flee to Salamis, but the diehards refused to give in. Athens hadn't fallen to the Dorians, it wouldn't fall to the Persians. However, it was Chemon, son of the dead hero Miltiades, who put an end to the debate. He led a group of wealthy horsemen up to the Acropolis and in front of the temple laid down their bridles, a symbolic gesture basically saying the war will be fought at sea, and let's get the heck out of here. 
Themistocles quickly gets out a decree to be copied down and read throughout the city with instructions. The city shall be entrusted to Athena and to the other gods for protection and defense against the barbarian. The Athenians in their entirety shall place their children and their women, as well as the elderly and movable property to be deposited at Salamis. The rest of the Athenians who have reached young manhood shall embark on the readied 200 ships, and they shall repulse the barbarian for the sake of liberty, both their own and that of the other Greeks. Aside from some temple workers, priestesses, and those who refused to leave, Athens was evacuated, the refugees being transported to Salamis with the aid of the newly arrived fleet from Artemisian. The great city now faced the wrath of Xerxes. His soldiers arrived to an empty town, save for the defenders holed up on the Acropolis. Within their wooden fortifications, built according to the interpretation of the oracle's wooden wall, they protected the only way up the Acropolis as long as they could, all while Persian archers rained fire arrows down on them. But if you think you can defend a rocky hill from mountain folk, you're going to have a bad time. The Persians, who had scaled the cliffs of Sardis and forged a path through Thermopylae, climbed the back of the Acropolis, finding a way, as Herodotus puts it, where no guard was, as no one thought anybody could climb that way. The defenders were overwhelmed, some choosing to leap to their death, others retreating to the inner sanctuary of the Temple of Athena. They would end up being massacred. That night, after the temples had been thoroughly looted, Athens was put to the torch. No account survives as to what Xerxes was thinking as he watched the city burn before his eyes. Satisfaction for getting back at the Athenians? Pride in having accomplished what his father couldn't? Or maybe even regret that the city couldn't be spared? Regardless, he sends a messenger back home to Susa to report on his victory. Well, maybe victory is a little premature. Athens might be burned crispy, but the Athenians were very much safe and alive at Salamis. The Greek fleet had been refitted and reinforced by new triremes from other cities and now numbered nearly 375. Oh, and the Spartans had finally mobilized their full army and were ready to give it their all. Now what remained to be seen was where the fight would take place. The Peloponnesian League had just completed defensive structures across the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow entrance to the Peloponnese, and they wanted to dig in there instead of a naval last stand at Salamis. Themistocles had already earned the cooperation of the Spartan commanders through monetary persuasion, but even they were starting to waver. Eurybiades complained that the Olympic Games were starting up again and they should really be there instead of at sea. But Themistocles reminded him of the sacrifices the Athenians had made to keep Greece safe. The Spartans should be ashamed. And when a representative from Eritrea tried to speak up, Themistocles let him have it. And what argument can you make about war, you who, like the squid, have a sword but no heart? He's talking about the quill bone on the squid's body, not actually tiny undersea swords. Which would kind of be awesome. Anyway, his arguments and bribes weren't leading anywhere. It was time for a bit of subterfuge. Under cover of darkness, Themistocles sends out a Persian captive loyal to him, for some reason, with an urgent message for Xerxes. It reads... Soon as the shades of night descend, the Grecians shall quit their station, rushing to their oars. They mean to separate, and in secret flight seek safety. Had the Athenian just sold out the Greeks to the man responsible for burning his beloved city? The message essentially told Xerxes to catch the ships now while they're in disarray, and it'll be like shooting fish in a barrel. The next day, Xerxes held a meeting with his military leaders. It had been about four months since they had left from Sardis, and already they had accomplished much. 
But continuing to supply and feed an army of this size was proving to be a challenging task, and the war needed to end soon. All in favor of just finishing this thing up at Salamis, say aye. Aye. All opposed? Nay. The single dissenter was the tyrant queen of Halicarnassus and Southwest Asia Minor, Artemisia. Inheriting the throne after her husband died, she was Xerxes' only female commander, admiral of the fleet from Caria, and the only one urging Xerxes to not attack, instead suggesting starving them out. The Greeks had twice proven that they were dangerous when cornered. Why take unnecessary risks? But though he commended her foresight, Xerxes explained that a naval battle would succeed, because he would be present, observing from a hill. Her peace said, she made ready to join her fleet and prepare for what was hoped to be the final offensive. Now in mid-September of 480 BC, the Persian fleet of about 800 moved out. Word reached the Greek commanders, and they were a little scared. Here, picture the geography in your mind. You got Attica on the east side, Salamis on the west, and the Straits down the middle. Separating the Straits further is an island, thus creating two entrances. The Greeks had anchored their ships just northwest of the Straits, in the narrow crescent-shaped Ampelachia Bay. And these conditions meant that if the Persians go on the offensive, there's nowhere to retreat. But Themistocles had not betrayed his countrymen. His strategy depended on the Persians taking the bait and going on the offense. And that's exactly what they would do. At dawn, Xerxes set up a little observation deck on top of a nearby hill on the Attican side. From there, he could send out communiques to his captains, take down names of which ships perform the best, and record the names of those who failed him. It's like he's playing a really big computer game, only, you know, real people are involved. His fleet spread out, traveling through and blocking both entrances to the bay. In response, the Greek triremes row out in single file, with the Spartans heading out first covering the east flank, then the other Greeks, and then the bulk of the fleet, the Athenians, covering the west flank. As the Persian ships rushed in looking to impress their divine leader, Themistocles gave the order, well, he told the Spartans to give the order, and the Greeks backed up, forming a U-shape and backpedaling closer and closer and closer to the shore, the Persians chasing after them until finally an old woman watching the ship screamed out, Madmen, how long are you going to back water? And then the Greeks exploded out from their position, slamming into the Persian ships with their underwater rams, sending the first wave crashing back into the second wave in a domino effect. In this first attack, a brother to Xerxes and one of four admirals in the battle has successfully boarded Themistocles' ship, but was struck down by two hoplites and his body tossed into the water. As new Persian ships moved in to engage the Greeks, they became entangled in the mess of splintered masts and shattered hulls, and trying to maneuver or retreat, crashed into yet another wave of oncoming ships, until it became overwhelmingly clear. This had become a complete disaster. Artemisia, who warned this would happen, saw the tide of battle turn, and to avoid being sunk by an Athenian trireme, rammed through a friendly Persian ship to get away. No sense dying for a lost cause. Incidentally, there was another powerful weapon at work here too, although the Greeks may have been unaware of it. Remember, it's not the Persians who were manning the ships. I know I keep calling them Persian ships, but that's only to keep things not confusing. The captains and crew are all Phoenicians, Egyptians, Ionians, Cilicians, seafaring people. The Persians are the soldiers on top for boarding procedures, mountain folk who could scale cliff sides, but didn't know how to swim. And so when their ships went down, the soldiers drowned with them. And if they somehow made it to shore, Greek reservists were standing by to quickly cut them down. 
Sitting on his throne overlooking the battle, Xerxes saw his plans for Greece vanish beneath the waves. By late afternoon, the fighting was over and the casualties were being counted. The Persians had lost almost 200 ships to the Greeks' 40, not to mention countless sailors and soldiers. In his anger to blame someone for this, he turns his rage on the Phoenician captains. Stupid Phoenicians, they probably lost the battle on purpose. Well, now they'll lose their heads. And he orders the captains executed. The problem here is that the rest of the Phoenicians were horrified at this display, and that night, hightailed it back home, taking with them the best ships and sailors in the fleet. And then for good measure, Xerxes received another letter from Themistocles, which basically read like this. Dear Xerxes, how are you? Just letting you know the Greeks were really in the mood last night to go after your ships and burn the Hellespont bridges, which as you might guess would totally strand you here, but I stopped them. Take the hint and scram. With love, Themistocles. Without the bridge, Xerxes would be trapped with his hungry and demoralized army. Not a good situation, and he wisely hightails it up north and back to Sardis by the end of September, early October. Xerxes wouldn't return to Greece, but the war is far from over. The failed general Mardonius had not delivered victory for Darius or Xerxes, but was still granted permission to take an army of about 80,000 to 100,000 to winter in Thessaly. Included were the Immortals, of course, and a force solely comprised of loyal Indo-Aryan troops. Persians, Medes, Bactrians, no treacherous Phoenicians here. These men would lay low and prepare for a renewed assault the following year. But that's in a while from now, and the Greeks have plenty of time to celebrate. There's even great news coming from the West that the tyrants of Sicily defeated the Carthaginians. Time to break out the Uzo. Yes, fortune seems to be smiling on the Greeks, but there's still work to be done. Themistocles, who had won respect for his insistence to defend Salamis, used the downtime to reorganize the army, make repairs to the ships, retake Athens, Mardonius abandoned it on the way up to Thessaly, and most importantly of all, find a way to pay for all this. The easiest solution was to travel to Persian-held Greek islands and demand payment. Charistos and Paros both paid tribute to the Greeks, but it's on Andros that this memorable conversation took place. Themistocles confronted the defenders as to what would happen if they didn't pay. The money will be paid, as we Athenians have two powerful gods on our side, persuasion and necessity. The Andrian response? That's all fine and good, but we Andrians have two useless gods on our side, poverty and helplessness. Cute, but it didn't spare the island from siege and plunder. Meanwhile, yet again, old rivalries and arguments were dividing the Greeks. The Spartans were insisting that with Athens burnt, the best defense was still at the Isthmus. The Athenians, of course, strongly disagreed and withdrew their ships from the main Greek fleet. The Spartans then called the Athenians jerkheads and blamed them for starting the war in the first place by burning Sardis. The Athenians called the Spartans ugly and made disparaging remarks about their mothers and how fat they were. This back-and-forth bickering continued on and off for the next few months, with nothing being accomplished or agreed upon until the spring of 479. Mardonius, perhaps seeing an opportunity to drive a wedge in the Greek political world, calls on Alexander of Macedon to negotiate a deal with the Athenians. In essence, it said, look, you burned our city, we burned yours, come on, we're even now. We're prepared to rebuild all your temples, restore your territory, even permit Athens to operate as a totally autonomous city. Think about how powerful you'd be with the Persian Empire backing you up. And actually, this sounded mighty tempting to the displaced Athenian populace. What had this whole concept of Greek unity got them? 
The Spartans could care less what happened to them. Maybe it was time for a new strategy. The Athenian elite asked for a night's reprieve to think it over. Tomorrow they'd have a decision. Now they used this time to invite a Spartan delegation to join them, just so they'd hear what Athens was being offered. The Spartans heard the terms and while no doubt looking quite stoic, were probably very, very nervous at the thought of an Athenian-Persian alliance. But the Athenians smiled at their laconic chums and spoke. We know as well as you do that the Persians are far stronger than our own. Nonetheless, we cling to our freedom so much that we will offer whatever resistance we can. Tell Mardonius that so long as the sun keeps on its present course, we will never join with Xerxes. Provided, of course, that the Spartans send their army and the Peloponnesian League to retake Boeotia and not wait it out at the Isthmus. And reassuring Alexander that there were no hard feelings between their two nations, the Macedonian king returned to Mardonius to deliver the bad news. Angered at this rejection, Mardonius takes his army to recapture Athens in June of 479, forcing Themistocles to once more evacuate the city. Again, the Persian general offered peace with the Athenians, but again he was denied. So now, instead of simply torching the city, he began to dismantle it, having his troops take it apart brick by brick, stone by stone. This had gone on far enough. The Athenians sent out a desperate request to the Spartans for help, and finally a bit of good news. They were already on their way, led by Pausanias, regent for the slain Leonidas' son, too young to rule. At his command were nearly 5,000 elite Spartan warriors, as well as 35,000 helot infantry and another nearly 30,000 hoplites from the Peloponnesian allies. Once Athens brought in her own troops, the Greek army stood at nearly 80,000, the largest combined fighting force ever seen in the Greek world and almost equal in size to the Persians. When news of Sparta's advance reached Mardonius, he fled from Athens to Thebes, which if you recall had gone over to the Persians, and had terrain better suited for cavalry. He set up his forces near the burned remains of Plataea, behind the Asopos River, and waited for the Greeks to make the first move. Except the Greeks were comfortable on the high ground they chose south of the river, and they weren't going anywhere. Impatient, Mardonius attacks, sending his horsemen out onto the Greek flanks. However, in this charge, the Persian cavalry commander was killed, thanks to a unit of Athenian archers, a weapon not normally used or liked by the Greeks. After a few more days of waiting for the other side to flinch, or for better omens, Mardonius couldn't afford to keep delaying the attack. Yet instead of going after the soldiers, he sent his remaining cavalry around the back to attack the Greek supply lines. At night, the raiding party rode out, destroying a convoy laden with food and poisoning the springs from which the Greeks were getting their water. The next day brought panic and concern for the Hellenic allies. It was now August, and fighting under the hot sun without water was like signing your own death warrant. To prevent another raid on their supply lines, the Greeks sought to retreat closer to Plataea, where they could better defend the shipments. That night, while it was safer, the center force of the Greeks, mostly from the smaller cities, pulled back, leaving the right wing of the Spartans and the left wing of the Athenians to hold the line in case of attack. However, in the dark, the center line got lost and retreated too far. The Athenians were next up, but they waited too long for the center line to clear before they moved. So as the sun rose, the Athenians had not yet finished pulling back, and the Spartans hadn't even started. Worried at the fragile state of his army, Pausanias leaves a token division of hoplites to buy them time. Now if we zoom out for a bird's eye view of the map, picture a river running horizontally with a tributary running down the right side. To the north were the Persians, lined up in attack formation. To the south, 
he got the Athenians hanging on to the west, the other cities disarrayed in the far south, and the Spartans hugging the tributary to the east. It was a mess. And Mardonius believed that the Greeks had finally caved into their political squabbles and fractured apart. The time has come to strike. At daylight on the 13th day since the armies had met outside the ruins of Plataea, the Persians attacked. Mardonius led the bulk of his forces towards the Spartan position. They were the most dangerous, after all, and harassed them with cavalry until the infantry got closer. Once in position, the Persian soldiers planted their wicker shields firmly in the ground and opened fire, launching wave after wave of arrows onto the Spartans. They were pinned down. Pausanias and his men bravely withstood the barrage, but kept hope that the Athenians would come to their aid. This was not to be, however, as the Athenian hoplites were up against the turncoat Thebans, fighting in the deadly phalanx formation. Perhaps realizing that they were on their own, the Spartans did what any rational people would do under a rain of arrows. They charged, racing towards the Persian infantry, colliding into them with their massive shields. Such was the ferocity of this attack that the Persians resorted to grabbing the Spartan spears away from them, to sort of neuter the phalanx. But without their spears, the Spartans moved next to the short swords at their side and kept up the attack. Except now they were vulnerable to mounted troops who had just re-entered the battle. Leading this new charge was Mardonius himself, perhaps in a play to win favor back home for this valor in battle. He would not live to see it. Upon recognizing the Persian general, who was riding an unmistakable white horse, one of the Spartan soldiers grabbed a large rock and hurled it directly at him, striking his head, killing him instantly. With their general dead, the Persians' morale broke, and they flee from battle. Some simply run as far as they can, while about 3,000 sought safety within the walls of their camp north of the river. By this time, the Athenians had broken the Theban phalanx, and they marched to join up with the Spartans. The other Greeks who had fled too far had also finally caught up and joined in the siege of the camp. Once the walls were breached, it was a slaughter. No Persian was left alive. The dust settled, and the battle was over. The Greeks had done it again. They stood victorious over a numerically superior imperial army. Investigating the camp, the Spartan commander Pausanias found Mardonius's opulent headquarters, decorated in gold and silver, with a full banquet feast already prepared. He laughed and called for the other Greek generals. I sent for you, O Greeks, to show you this folly. How far the Persians traveled to rob us of our poverty. How very Spartan. Pausanias orders the Helots to strip the camp of all the booty and loot they could find and deposit it in a giant pile to be distributed to the men. Ten percent went to the oracle at Delphi, well, Apollo, but she gets the treasure as his agent. And much of the bronze weaponry would be melted down to form a large column of three intertwining snakes with the cities who participated in battle inscribed on it. The Serpent's Column, as it's called, still exists in a reduced form and stands in the Hippodrome of Constantine in Istanbul today. At the same time the Battle of Plataea was going on, another simultaneous battle took place. Under the other Spartan king, the Greek fleet pursued the Persian ships to Samos on the Ionian coast. The Persians, however, decided to beach their ships and build a wooden wall around them, choosing to fight the Greeks on land. Well, how could a Spartan refuse? Even though each Greek trireme carried no more than 30 hoplites, they disembarked, meeting the Persian garrison at the shore. The defenders, thinking they had the numerical advantage, charged at the Greeks, but the hoplites once again proved their mettle and soundly trounced them. The Persian camp was looted, taken apart, and the ships were burned. 
On their way back home, the Greeks made a detour up to the Hellespont to actually get around to destroying that bridge. But it turned out someone beat them to it. No one knows for sure who did. Greek saboteurs? Persians looking to cover their tracks? Regardless, the bridge was dismantled even further, with the Athenians carrying off the massive flax and linen cables back home as a trophy. And so ends the second Persian invasion of Greece. The Greeks learned to cooperate long enough to hold off a massive invasion, and with some excellent military strategy and tactics, stood supreme. That'll teach those Imperials not to come knocking around anymore. I bet they're still fuming over their loss, nursing their wounds, and crying like little baby men. Well, not exactly. Yeah, they lost the war. But so what? The Persian Empire is still ridiculously huge and wealthy, and Xerxes is still king of kings. He spends the next 14 or so years launching building projects and generally enjoying his luxurious lifestyle, until he's assassinated in 465 by his chief bodyguard, who in turn is killed by Artaxerxes, his son. Over in Greece, it's mostly mop-up time, getting rid of any Persian stragglers, punishing Greek cities that switch sides, we're looking at you, Thebes, and more or less getting back to normal. As for the Athenians, however, normal was a long ways away. Their beloved city lay in ruin. Homes, temples, all smashed to pieces, scorch marks blotting the landscape. Where do you even go from there? And that's what we'll hear about next time, as we follow up on the Athenians post-war. Without a common enemy to unite against, would the Greeks turn on each other? And what about Sparta? They're coming out of this pretty well off. Would the destruction of Athens shift the balance of power to the Peloponnese? Well, not if Themistocles has anything to say about it. It's reconstruction time on the podcast history of our world. <laughs>